Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Trying to divert 
you know, my energy and submerge my energy. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to stay on this line anymore and allow it because you people are being used by this system to push racism. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing right here. I don't even know why you invited me on this show. You're trying to use me as some kind of target. You don't give a fuck about move people being in jail and being innocent. You don't care about what the system is doing to life. All you want to talk about is white people. And where is the solution in that? Where is the solution in that? You ain't got no goddamn solution. You ain't got no goddamn solution. John Africa got solution. He got solution. He talking about bringing people together to fight our common enemy, which is the goddamn industrialist. And you're right. I use words that are vulgar to describe a vulgar situation. And if you can't understand that, you're a loser. You're a loser. Because there have been very few people in the world that cannot understand that. You don't use a nice word to describe a profane situation. After everything this organization has been through, you're going to get on the air and talk some stupid nonsense about why are you so vulgar, Sue Africa. That is the most mundane, despicable, racist comment I have ever heard. I've ever heard. And Gus, I don't know what your game plan here is. It's obviously you are being used to set something up here to divert people away from John Africa's information. You're a cop. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, December 26, 2019. So I have been told this is our third and final study session on Mumia Abu-Jamal's Live from Death Row. I thought we would have one more week, but... The book is not very long, and thankfully so, because I have not enjoyed the book at all. In fact, it has been so unpleasant. It has been in the realm. I have been thinking like, wow, this is like Sue. I mean, excuse me, not Sue Africa. This is like black love is a revolutionary act level of, you know, poor quality. This is uh, like the hate you give bad book range. Uh, That's what I've been thinking uh, frequently, especially this here week. The reason that I began with Sue Africa is because there is a lot of mention of move in the book. There will be a lot of mention of move this week. We here at the cows have done our homework on move. Dr. Jason Osder uh, did his documentary film on the move organization in 2014. He was a guest on the program. We talked about the organization extensively. Ramona Africa was a guest on the program, victim of racism in 2016. She helped us get Sue Africa on the program also in 2016. You can go back in the archives and listen to all of that. That is why I said, hey, I'm going to start with Sue Africa because you go back and listen to that archive and you tell me 
if you think you have an accurate understanding of what it means to be white, racism, white supremacy, if you end up with Sue Africa as your comrade at arms encountering racism, white supremacy. I thought of Sue Africa so much this week. I said, reading this book, I said, mm hmm. This is exactly how you end up with Sue Africa as your homie. I could be in error. Be mindful of the word revolutionary this week. That's a word that should be in the word guide that we should be mindful of. Be mindful of the frequency of the use of the term revolutionary. Context of white supremacy. This is live from death row. Final study session. Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. Expert Witness from Hell In 1987, a 28-year-old West Virginia cemetery worker, Glenn Dale Woodall, was convicted of the vicious, brutal kidnapping and rape of two women. His life almost ended when a judge sentenced him to two life terms with an additional 325-year sentence for the crimes. The evidence was convincing. The state's medical examiner testified that Woodall's semen was found in both victims. Medical examiners, like all expert witnesses, are accorded high respect in American courts for they are thought to be totally impartial and only an ally of science. In Woodall's case, the testimony of medical examiner Fred Zing was the key that locked him away in a dim prison cell for the rest of his natural life. There was only one problem. Zing, forensic expert for the West Virginia State Police for over a decade, was wrong. After Woodall spent almost five years in prison, his lawyer, Lonnie Simmons, took a long shot by having remnants of the semen found in the victims tested by the new DNA method. The test proved conclusively that Woodall's semen did not match the samples. Woodall, sentenced to two life terms plus 325 years, was innocent. The West Virginia Supreme Court of the forensic experts testing in other cases and came up with the startling conclusion that Zane's work was systematically deficient entering the following ruling. Any testimony or documentary evidence offered by Zane at any time in any criminal prosecution should be deemed invalid, unreliable, and inadmissible. For 13 years, Zane testified in hundreds of rape and murder trials in West Virginia and later performed similarly in San Antonio, Texas, affecting, according to one attorney's estimate, more than 4,500 criminal cases in two states. In 1990, a handyman, Jack Davis, was sentenced to life in prison for the 1989 murder and mutilation of a central Texas woman. Zing testified at Davis's trial that blood found under the victim's body placed the defendant at the scene. Davis's lawyer, Stanley Schneider, proved that, in fact, no test was done. Zing, according to forensic specialists in both states, wrote reports on tests that were never done, reported positive matches 
where negatives would have cleared suspects and listed as conclusive test results that were inconclusive. His efforts to please cops and prosecutors sent possibly thousands of innocent men to serve centuries in prison across two states, some on death row. As of this writing, the ex-medical examiner hasn't been charged with a single offense in either state. His lawyer, Larry Sousa, laments that Zane's life has been ruined. He can't find a job in his profession. He's been reduced to working as a common laborer. He has nowhere to go. I'm sure several thousand prisoners in West Virginia and Texas have some ideas about where to send him. May 1994 The Demand for Death Death Row Prisoner Michael Allen DeRocher of Florida sent a letter to the governor literally begging to be executed. When Governor Lawton Childs signed his death warrant, DeRocher sent him a thank you note on August 25, 1993, at 7.15 a.m., DeRocher, 33, got his wish. California's death row convict, David Mason, fired his appellate lawyers, stating his willingness to die in the gas chamber. Mason, 36, was angrily critical of what he called the industry of lawyers capitalizing off of capital appeals. Despite his 11th hour conversion from his previous determination to die, the Mason case came to symbolize the apparently growing occurrence of death row prisoners who demand death. The case also demonstrates the difference between popular perception and reality. Of the approximately 2,700 men and women on U.S. death rows, only 26 people, less than 1% have volunteered to be executed. The Washington, D.C.-based National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty has assembled data detailing the racial breakdown of those opting for execution and found the following. White, 21, 80.8%. Black, 2, 7.7%. Latino, 2, 7.7%. Not available, 1, 3.8%. Whites constitute less than 51% of all death row prisoners in the United States, but make up over 80% of all volunteers for execution. Why? Nationally, African Americans mark roughly 40% of the U.S. death row population and 46% of state prisoners. Increasingly, since the rebellious 1960s, prison populations have become blacker and blacker, a reality that can be perceived only as threatening and fearful to the average white prisoner. For far too many blacks, prisons have become a warped rite of passage a malevolent mark of manhood and a dark expectation. For whites, however, even working class whites, prison is a mark of social expulsion 
in extremis and an affirmation of one's outcast status. Blacks have a longer history of rejection from this society than the relatively recent era of grudging acceptance. Many have been socialized into oppression with prison just one more grim experience in a bitter existence. What all share equally, however, is the relentless regime of lockdown, loneliness, isolation, and hopelessness while one awaits death, exacting a terrible psychic, spiritual, psychological, and familial toll. A flight to death, then, is often a flight from the soul-killing conditions of death row. September 1993 already out of the game. The newest political fever sweeping the nation, the three strikes you're out rage, will, barring any last minute changes, become law in the United States, thereby opening the door to a state by state march to an unprecedented prison building boom. What most politicians know, however, is what most people do not, that three strikes you're out will do next to nothing to eradicate crime and will not create the elusive dream of public safety. They also know that it will be years before the bills come due but when they do they'll be real doozies. By then they reason they'll be out of office and it'll be another politician's problem. That's because the actual impact of three strikes will not be felt for at least 10 to 20 years from now simply because that's the range someone arrested today would face already under the current laws and the additional time not to mention additional costs will kick in then. It seems a tad superfluous to state that already some 34 states have habitual offender so-called career criminal laws which call for additional penalties on the second, not the third, felony in addition to the actual crime. As with every law, taxpayers will have to pay the cost to be the boss. Pennsylvanians are paying over $600 million this fiscal year for their prisons. Californians over $2.7 billion this year with costs for next year expected to top costs for higher education. As prisons become increasingly geriatric with populations hitting their 50s and 60s, those already atmospheric costs will balloon exponentially for expected health costs so that although many Americans, an estimated 37 million, don't have guaranteed health care, prisoners will, although of doubtful quality. Frankly, it's always amazing to see politicians sell their we-gotta-get-tough-on-crime shtick to a country that is already the world's leading incarcerator and perhaps more amazing to see the country buy it. One state has already trod that tough ground back in the 1970s. California led the nation in 1977 with their tough determinant sentencing law and their prison population exploded over 500% from 1979 to 2000. 
from 22,486 in 1973 to 119,000 in 1993, now boasting the largest prison system in the Western world, 50% larger than the entire federal prison system. Do Californians rushing to pass the three strikes you're out ballot initiative feel safer? A more cynical soul viewing this prison boom bill through the lens of economic interest might suppose that elements of the correctional industry, builders, guards, unions, and the like are fueling the boom, at least in part. Another element is the economy itself, where America enters the post-industrial age when Japan produces the world's computer chips, Germany produces high-performance autos, and America produces prisons. Prisons are where America's jobs programs, housing programs, and social control programs merge into a dark hole and where those already outside of the game can be exploited and utilized to keep the game going. March 1994 a bill that is a crime. The so-called crime bill that profane political expletive is now the law. Packing some 60-odd death penalties, a three-strikes-you're-out provision, and billions of bucks for cops and prisons, the crime bill, as proposed by President Clinton, was an act so draconian that neither Presidents Bush nor Reagan could have successfully passed such a measure. The bill is, in essence, a $30 billion-plus public employment program for predominantly white workers, a social program, if ever there was one, that reflects the changing face of America's sociopolitical and economic reality. So nakedly political was the fight for the bill's passage that it boiled down to a misleading equation of pork versus toughness. Republicans attacked the bill as pork. Democrats touted it as tough on crime, while both sides were merely seeking partisan advantage for the fall campaigns. It is the purest pork to call for building prisons in a nation that leads the entire world in imprisonment of its citizens. The outbreaks of criminal cops uncovered by the New York Molin Commission reveals that the equation more cops equals less crime is both simplistic and erroneous. This is pork choppish in the extreme. For prisoners, the crime bill outlaws knowledge because it prohibits government funds for college courses as the following provision notes. Section 20411 Awards of Pell Grants to Prisoners Prohibited A. In general, Section 401B8 of the Higher Education Act of 1965, 20 U.S.C. 1070 AB8 is amended to read as follows. 8. No basic grant shall be awarded under the subpart to any individual who is incarcerated in any federal or state penal institution. How any member of Congress can, in good faith, 
reason that human ignorance fights crime or protects society is beyond comprehension. Indeed, it can be said that ignorance is the mother of all crime. But the ideologically driven drivel that is the crime bill, this dark political ticket for re-election, will bite the asses of Americans for generations to come. It will drive public bankruptcy. It will fuel greater violence. It will create prisoners who are dumber, more alienated, but more desperate in life's scuffle for survival. Consider this. The drugged out zombie about to rob you calculates the worth of stealing your property versus four to eight years in prison if caught. Factor in your property versus life without parole and your life, not your property, is devalued. That swift and fatal calculation is being tallied hourly in cities from coast to coast and the so-called crime bill just made it more costly for you. September 1994 Part 3 Musings, Memories, and Prophecies Musings on Malcolm Thanks to the efforts of premier filmmaker Spike Lee, the name Malcolm X is once again on millions of lips. Based largely on the autobiography of Malcolm X penned by the late Alex Haley, the film tells the epic tale of a man who was indeed larger than life. This is not, and cannot be, a film review, for I have never seen the film for reasons that should be obvious. Rather, it is a musing on the life that gave both Haley and Spike grist for their mills. Few black men live a life as full of glory and tragedy as did he. Martin Luther King Jr. did, and to a lesser extent, so did Marcus Garvey, as well as the late Black Panther co-founder Dr. Huey P. Newton. As were King and Newton, Malcolm X was assassinated, but perhaps the similarity ends there. For as America lionized, lauded, and elevated King more for his nonviolent philosophy than for his person, it ignored and ignomized Malcolm as it did Dr. Newton, a Malcolmite as were most panthers, whose obituaries dwelt on the dark side, ignoring the brilliance of his life, a force that still smolders in black hearts thirty years after his assassination in New York City. The system used the main nonviolent themes of Martin Luther King's life to present a strategy designed to protect its own interests. Imagine the most violent nation on earth, the heir of Indian and African genocide, the only nation ever to drop an atomic bomb on a civilian population, the world's biggest arms dealer, the country that napalmed over 10 million people in Vietnam to save it from communism, the world's biggest jailer waving the corpse of King calling for nonviolence. The Black Panther Party considered itself the sons of Malcolm, at least many male Panthers did, for the sons he never had. Malcolm and his wife, Dr. Betty Shabazz, had a passel of stunning daughters. 
and inherited one of their central tenets, black self-defense, from his teachings. While the eloquent, soaring oratory of Dr. King touched, moved, and motivated the southern black church, middle and upper classes, and white liberal predominantly Jewish intelligentsia, his message did not find root in the black working class and urban north, a fact noted by his brilliant, devoted aide-de-camp, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, who noted in his autobiography that in Chicago, King met a glacial white hatred, black indifference, and near disaster. Northern-bred blacks preferred a more defiant, confrontational, and militant message than turn the other cheek, and Malcolm X provided it in clear, uncompromising terms. His message of black self-defense and African-American self-determination struck both Muslim and non-Muslim alike as logical and reasonable, given the decidedly unchristian behavior displayed by America to the black, brown, red, and yellow world. The media, as Malcolm predicted, would attempt to homogenize, whiten, and distort his message. How many have read of him in a recent newspaper described as a civil rights leader, a term he loathed? Stories tell of his softening towards whites after his sojourn to Mecca, conveniently ignoring that Malcolm continued to revile white Americans, still in the grips of a racist system that crushes black life, still. Post-Mecca, Malik found among white-skinned Arabs and Europe and European converts to Islam a oneness that he found lacking in Americans. So deeply entrenched was racism in American whites that Malcolm Malik sensed the intrinsic difference in how the two peoples saw and described themselves. Arabs calling themselves white referred simply to skin tone. Americans meant something altogether different. You know what he means when he says, I'm white, he means he's boss, Malcolm thundered. Malcolm and the man who returned from Mecca, Haj Malik Shabazz, both were scourges of American racism who saw it as an evil against humanity and the God that formed them. He stood for and died for human rights of self-defense and a people's self-determination not for civil rights which as the Supreme Court has indeed shown changes from day to day case to case administration to administration December 1992 Deadly Deja Vu after 51 days of remarkable religious resistance, the U.S. government eliminated over 80 members of the Branch Davidian sect near Waco, Texas. The sect, an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists, have been held up at their Mount Carmel headquarters after an armed and botched alcohol, tobacco, and firearms ATF raid which left four government agents and an undetermined number of Davidians dead from a brief but fierce firefight. Throughout the 51-day standoff, the government sought daily to demonize the Branch Davidian leader, David Koresh, 
as a pedophile, a false prophet, and a psychopath. The U.S. government, its agents' egos are burst after 51 days with no progress, i.e. surrender, pursued a dangerous campaign of destruction of the front of the buildings in preparation for CS tear gas insertion and after the thorough distribution of this airborne irritant apparently caused a firestorm that consumed more than 80 men, women, and babies at the scene. Even before the fire had finished burning, the White House issued a statement determining suicide as the cause of death of the 80-plus people before a moment's investigation. There's an old Chinese saying, no investigation, no right to speak. And under such an adage, the White House should have been silent at least until a full, fair, impartial investigation was conducted. The only source suggesting the Branch Davidians killed themselves was the FBI itself. Hardly an impartial source. The firestorm in Waco, Texas, which snuffed out an estimated 86 lives, shares eerily reminiscent predecessors with the police bombing of Move People on May 13, 1985 in Philadelphia. Both scenes of carnage were preceded by government media demonization campaigns that portrayed the people under government siege as insane for daring to resist the state. By contrast, the government, i.e. the police, is always seen as reasonable. In Philadelphia, where the contrasts were even sharper because of race, class, and politics, the intentional mass murder of MOVE men, women, and children was justified by the government. MOVE, they reasoned, were terrorists, bad niggers. The Koreshians were fanatics who were suspected of physical and sexual abuse of children thus psychologically expendable. Only after such social equations are made can the state drop bombs, as was done to move, or punch holes in people's homes, as in Waco, and be reported in the media as reasonable. Predictably, in both instances, in the hours or minutes following the assaults, the government justified the results as suicide, thereby taking itself off the hook. The initial ATF assault on Mount Carmel purportedly for a minor weapons violation leading up to infernal clash of egos that launched tanks and tons of gas into the Koreshian home was an act of colossal government arrogance and impatience. The flames and carnage of both Philadelphia and Waco merge at the strike ignited by a government that perceives itself more as a master than as a servant of the people. April 1993 Rodney wasn't the only one. The internationally televised aggravated assault of black Los Angeles motorist Rodney King by police struck millions as a nasty revelation of the ugly underbelly of how white cops and black civilians interact in the dark streets of America. Many apologists for the police decried the King video as an aberration from the norm and tended to justify it based on the purported threats posed by that particular defendant, a variation of the so-called big nigger defense. 
At least one reputable study, however, reveals that the brutal Rodney King LAPD encounter was just one of many across America, painting a vivid portrayal of a nationwide pattern of violent assaults by white cops against national minorities. The study, a two-year survey of both national and regional newspapers, found in the words of study conductor Joseph Feagan, a University of Florida sociology professor, that Rodney King's beating is not an isolated incident. Feagan and fellow University of Florida researcher Kim Lurch utilized the Nexus computer system to search publications from January 1990 to May 1992 to uncover 130 reports of police brutality. If one accepts the obvious that not all such incidents are even reported, much less published, then it occurred at least four times a month or once a week during the report period. The Fegan study showed that African Americans or Latinos were victims of the brutality in 97% of such cases and white cops were centrally involved in over 93% of the beatings. We found said Lurch, that the cases typically involved groups of white police officers assaulting a black or Latino in these times, May 3, 1993. Indeed, Lurch noted, the data revealed a national pattern that could best be termed routine. The UF study researchers attempted to check their results against a presumably reliable source that is the U.S. Department of Justice. In March 1991, when King's brutal video beating was fueling international outrage, then U.S. Attorney General Richard Thornburg ordered a Justice Department survey for the previous six-year period. Although it was completed over a year ago, it has never been released, not even to these U.F. researchers. The nationally broadcast television show Justice Files recently released an astonishing report revealing that in a 10-year period from 1981 to 1991, more than 79,000 cases of police brutality coast-to-coast -coast occurred. If accurate, these numbers mean more than 7,900 assaults by police a year in America. A civilian is brutalized by police on average more than 658 times a month, more than 164 times a week. The police tools of white state capitalist power are a force creating chaos in the community, not peace. They have created more crime, more disruption, more loss of property, life and peace than any group of criminals in the nation. Because of the police gang in America, riots are inevitable and blame may be laid at the feet of those claiming to be peace officers who brutalize the people they are sworn to serve. May 1993 L.A. Law The federal trial of four Los Angeles cops forced by the public orgy of rebellion and rage that had rocked the city a year before in response to the acquittals stemming from the brutal Rodney King beating ended in a jury compromise, two guilty, two acquitted. Observers may be dispirited by the fact that two cops who brutalized, 
traumatized and pummeled King were acquitted, but the trial itself raises some serious and disturbing questions. While no one could call this writer a cop lover, it is my firm opinion that the federal retrial of the four L.A. cops involved in King's legalized brutality constituted a clear violation of the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which forbids double jeopardy. The Fifth Amendment provides in part that nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. For millions of African Americans, Chicanos, and a host of Americans, the acquittals of the L.A. Cop 4 in the Semi Valley State Assault Trial was an outrage that solidified the conviction that there can be no justice in the courts of this system for black people. Although not a reason for the L.A. Rebellion, it certainly was a psychic straw that broke the camel's back. The Semi Valley Trial like the king beating itself was both an obscenity and a commonality for neither all-white pro-police juries nor state-sanctioned brutality are rarities to those who live in u.s tombs as opposed to reading about them the point is the federal lapd king civil rights trial was a political prosecution spurred by international embarrassment stemming from the raging flames of L.A. without which no prosecution would have occurred. It also reveals how the system, under the pressure of an outraged people, will betray the trusts of their own agents, so one need not ask how they will treat or do treat one not their own, especially when there is public pressure to support it. The same system that denied the four L.A. cops their alleged constitutional rights denies the rights of the poor and politically powerless daily with impunity and will further utilize the Coon case to deny others to be silent while the state violates its own alleged constitutional law to prosecute someone we hate is but to invite silence when the state violates its own laws to prosecute the state's enemies and opponents this we cannot do we must deny the state that power the national aclu is of the opinion that the second federal prosecution violated the fifth amendment to the u.s constitution a position that seems sound I believe that the convictions will later be reversed on that basis by an appellate court. It is ironic that many of those who did not oppose the federal civil prosecutions feel it inappropriate for the federal system to review state convictions under habeas corpus statutes. All this second federal civil rights violation case has done is provide the system with camouflage to give the appearance of justice. The illusion is never the real. April 1993 Absence of Power A woman working to feed the homeless gets involved in a confrontation with transit cops down in a major metropolitan subway. She is accosted, manhandled, thrown to the ground, and held under restraint. Another woman has her window shattered by the highway patrol when she doesn't move her car fast enough or open her window on command. She is seized, handcuffed, and arrested. 
What makes these cases remarkable is the identity of the women described here. The first, in addition to being a political leader in her own right, is the wife of a U.S. congressman. The second, a prominent professional, is the wife of a state representative. Both women are African American. Although the charges against these women were later dropped, the very fact that they were treated so crudely despite their prominence and influence makes one wonder how people without such influence are treated by agents of the state. The two events just described occurred in Philadelphia in 1993. The first involved Philadelphia City Councilwoman Mrs. Janie Blackwell wife of freshman U.S. Representative Lucian Blackwell. The second involved a leading black Philadelphia lawyer, Mrs. Renee Hughes, a past president of the prestigious Barristers Association, local affiliate of the National Bar Association, and wife of State Representative Vincent Hughes, District 170th Democrat. That both cases were administratively resolved is of less importance than that these incidents occurred at all. Indeed, such incidents are daily occurrences in the lives of black men and women in America, regardless of class, rank, status, or station in life. That cops can treat people so shabbily, the very people who literally pay their salaries and set their operating budgets, gives a grim glimmer of life at the social, economic, political bottom where people have no influence, no clout, no voice. These cases revealed the cold contempt white cops have for black men and women even if those women are in positions of state power and are presumed to be in control. In truth, any control is illusory and as totally evanescent as power itself. Police are out, black politicians are out of power. When these events occur, we can only conclude that if such events can happen to them, what of us? If people can watch the massacre of MOVE people on May 13, 1985, as police firebombed MOVE headquarters and the ATF, FBI, ramming and destruction of the Koreshians of Waco, Texas in April 1993, and still claim the police are under control, then nothing said here will convince them. The police are agents of white ruling class capitalists will, period. Neither black managers nor black politicians can change that reality. The people themselves must organize for their own defense or it won't get done. April 1993 Clinton Guillotines Guineer Brilliant, able, scholarly, and provocative, University of Pennsylvania law professor Lonnie Guineer had all the necessary attributes to bring a dark luster to the foundering Clinton administration. Professor Guineer was an authentic F.O.B.H. friend of Bill Hillary, who went to Yale Law School with the first family and her nomination to the post of Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights was hailed as a bold step forward. But a concerted anti-Gunier campaign 
orchestrated by a bipartisan conservative hit squad gathered into a witch hunt designed to destroy her chances and painted this prominent professor as a radical with ideas out of the mainstream. Faced with undercover anonymous opposition by the Senate Judiciary Committee fanned by attacks in the conservative press, Bill Clinton sacrificed his friend of half his life to the wolves and, in an act as startling as it was unprecedented, withdrew her nomination while denigrating her scholarship, thereby denying her the opportunity to appear before the Senate to state her case. To appease a right wing that had never supported him, Clinton gave the axe to Professor Gunnier. Clinton's withdrawal of the Gunnier nomination stunned his most ardent supporters, especially African Americans and women who seemed hurt most by his apparent political clumsiness. This fiasco didn't occur in a vacuum, but was a piece of Clinton strategy that might be termed playing to the cheap seats. Whenever Clinton slips in the polls, his quick fix has consisted of a subtle but unmistakable appeal to the lowest common denominator in American politics, race. When the candidate Clinton was embroiled in the Jennifer Flowers controversy, his response was a mid-campaign flight to Little Rock, Arkansas to oversee the execution of Ricky Ray Rector a brain-damaged black man on death row. When he began to sink in the polls, his political instincts led him to denounce rapper Sister Soldier in an affront to the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who had invited them both to speak at a rainbow conference. In the first instance, he sought to divert attention from a gnawing sex scandal by demonstrating his toughness on crime. In the second, he sought to demonstrate independence from the black wing of the Democratic Party. From the hiring of a Reaganite ideologue, conservative writer David Garrigan, to the abandonment of Professor Gunnier, the central theme was ever insult or injury to blacks, his most loyal constituency, in order to attract white so-called centrist support. Is it mere coincidence that prior to the dumping of Gunnier, Clinton's ratings were the lowest ever? The shameful sacking of Professor Gunnier to appease a faction that will never accept him anyway shows that a new Democrat is no different from an old Republican. June 1993 Another Side of Glory Thanks to an old party comrade, I have had an opportunity to finally read David Hilliard's This Side of Glory, the autobiography of David Hilliard and the story of the Black Panther Party, Little Brown, 1993. It is interesting and tragic telling of Hilliard's life, his hard scrabble Alabaman origins, his heady elevation to chief of staff of the Black Panther Party, and his plunge into drugged defeat and dejection. It tells David's story, blemishes and all, too well. What it does not tell is the story of the Black Panther Party. 
in truth there never was one party but over 45 of them branches and chapters with their own characters and local idiosyncrasies scattered across the United States with one branch in Algiers North Africa all united into a whole woven by a revolutionary ideal because this is a review of sorts I hereby announce my own biases I am a former panther so I offer no pretense of objectivity I knew many of the people discussed in the book on both coasts those living and dead because I worked lived in or visited several chapters across the country as a panther assigned to the party's ministry of information I remember many beautiful and wonderful brothers and sisters who gave their all their very lives in defense of the party but about them the book is largely silent if one were to read glory only could one conclude their heroic sacrifices were because ignored in vain it tells the story of national headquarters in berkeley california or the early oakland chapter quite well but by 1970 the party was a national organization which except for brief references to the conflicts between new york and oakland isn't made clear here each chapter reflected deep regionalisms from california la and oakland which had a wealth of country southern guys and gals huey david and geronimo were country boys from the deep south to new york where branches had hispanic members a faster more up-tempo urban pace david even remarks on his dismay over new york style to chicago a wicked mix of them both hilliard aptly notes that jesse jackson borrowed from the oratory and flair of assassinated illinois deputy chairman fred hampton a masterful revolutionary organizer murdered by the government when they peeped his potential while hilliard glorifies ex-prisoners who became panthers he largely ignores ex-panthers who became prisoners as well as political prisoners and pow's who have been down for decades Hilliard is most interesting when he tells of his encounters with former Black Panther Party Defense Minister Dr. Huey P. Newton, an enigma worn by flesh. Brilliant, mercurial, confident, insecure, blessed, cursed, loved, loathed, all were facets of Huey P. Newton. A self-professed homie of Huey, Hilliard doesn't examine why he or the rest of the Peralta Street crew couldn't pull Huey up from the pit into which he'd fallen why any of our academia didn't utilize his brilliance at say Howard University or Tuskegee or some other historically black college how can a man of Huey's caliber be allowed to die in such ignominy such squalor such degradation one looks in vain for a political radical or revolutionary perspective that survives in Hilliard's book and in its steed one finds the author promoting the ten steps to sobriety from Alcoholics Anonymous rather than the socially dynamic ten-point Black Panther Party program which still cries out for implementation almost 30 years later people flee to drink 
or drugs to escape the torturous conditions that daily plague and devalue black life in this world. The very conditions that gave rise to the party in the 1960s, brutal cops, racist courts, ineffective education, joblessness, and the like still plague our people to this day. A few black, largely powerless politicians pose no solutions. We still have far to go. July 1993 What to a prisoner is the 4th of July? At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could I reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke, for it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed, and its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. What, to the American slave, is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him, more than all the other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. To the slave, your shouts of liberty and inequality are hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Frederick Douglass, July 5th, 1852. July 4, 1993, saw ANC President Dr. Nelson R. Mandela in Philadelphia quoting the Honorable Frederick Douglass's speech as he accepted the Liberty Medal along with South African State President F. W. de Klerk. If the joint presence of Mandela and de Klerk were not enough to stir controversy, then the award presenters, Philadelphia Mayor Ed Rendell and U.S. President Clinton, certainly stoked controversy among radicals. Hundreds of black Philadelphians, while certainly admirers of Dr. Mandela, took umbrage at de Klerk's presence. Although the awarders are known as We the People Philadelphia, the actual everyday people of Philadelphia had little say in choosing the Liberty Medal awardees and less say in rejecting the widely unpopular honoree de Klerk. The choice of Liberty Medalists was made not by the people, but by corporate Philadelphia big business. Why? Why were the people, 
many of whom had worked for more than 20 years against apartheid and for Mandela's release, frozen out, their protests against de Klerk all but ignored? When, or if, the African majority takes power in South Africa, U.S. big business wants friends there. If one reads the names of corporate sponsors of the award, it sounds like roll call of the Chamber of Commerce. Unices Corporation, Pennsylvania Bell, and the like. Mandela, who has not voted in a government election in 74 years, and de Klerk, president by way of an election counting only minority non-black votes, has only the hope of liberty no more. The white majority in South Africa has done its level best to stifle African liberty for 300 years. The African majority, even after the awards, still isn't free. July 1993 A house is not a home. She sits in utter stillness, her coffee-brown features as if set in obsidian, as if a mask, barely perceptible, the tears threaten to overflow that dark, proud maternal face, a face held still by rage. A warm spring day in North Philadelphia saw her on her way home after her tiring duties as a housekeeper in a West Mount Airy home. On arrival, she was stopped by police who told her she could not enter her home of 23 years and that it would be torn down as part of a city program against drug dens. My house ain't no drug den, the 59-year-old grandmother argued. This is my home. The cops, strangers to this part of town, could care less. Mrs. Helen Anthony left the scene to contact her grown children. Two hours later, she returned to an eerie scene straight out of the twilight zone. Her home was no more. A pile of bricks stood amid hills of red dust and twisted debris, a lone wall standing jagged, a man's suit flapping on a hook, flapping like a flag of surrender after a war waged by bulldozers and ambitious politicians. Mrs. Anthony received no warning before the jaws of the baleful backhoe bit into the bricks of her life, tearing asunder the gatherings and memories of a life well lived. She was served no notice that the city of brotherly love intended to grind her home of 23 years into dust because they didn't like her neighbors. They just showed up one day armed with television cameras and political ambitions and did it gone. When reporters asked politicos about the black grandmother whose home was demolished, they responded with characteristic arrogance. Well, the law of eminent domain gives us the right to tear down any house we wanna, they said. When coverage turned negative, out came the olive branch. We'll reimburse her. Oops, honest mistake. Compensation. Left unquestioned is the wisdom of a policy of mass destruction planned over a brunch of brie and croissants executed for the six o'clock news with no regard for the lives and well-being of the people involved.
in a city with an estimated 30,000 homeless people, why does the government embark on a blitzkrieg of bulldozing and demolishing homes, even abandoned ones? Mrs. Anthony offered a home in compensation by red-faced city officials is less than enthused. The way the city treated her opined her daughter, Geraldine Johnson, she does not want to live in Philadelphia. Her treatment at the hands of those who call themselves civil servants points to the underlying indifference with which black lives, property, and aspirations are treated by the political elite. One would be hard-pressed to find this degree of destructive nonchalance in a neighborhood where a white grandmother lived. Another chapter in the tragic comedy called The Drug War, April 1992. Context of white supremacy. That is our first audio segment, Mumia Abu-Jamal live from Death Row. I thought we were going to be totally done with the book today. We will not finish this book completely. The afterword is a little too long. I did my best, and I was really ready to roll to get it done, but uh, we would not have had any commentary. It would have just been a full program of reading, and that's it. So we will have a very little bit. It's, in fact, it's just the afterword. Technically, we are done with the book this week, but the afterword is kind of lengthy, so it will take some time. And the afterword actually goes into details about Mumia's case. So the people uh, who wanted more details, uh, Mumia's attorney wrote the afterword, so you will get many more details about what happened with his case and how he ended up on death row in the first place. Anyway, number to dial 605-313-5164, decode 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Again, much obliged uh, for everyone's patience. Uh, was a delay getting the broadcast started. Uh, just was not my uh, computer was not connecting to the Wi-Fi for some odd reason. I am still in Seattle, as I said. Uh, I'm not leaving until tomorrow for the retreat in Florida, but I am not at home. And uh, I thought, hey, you know, what's the big deal? Wi-Fi is everywhere. Great city of Seattle. And I went. The Wi-Fi was technically there, but I was not able to connect, so it caused about a 15-minute delay. But we are all good. They have copy sh coffee shops aplenty. And we are connected and ready to roll. Number again, 605-313-5164. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I'm going to read some of the folks who wrote in first, just to make sure I don't miss out people who've been listening to the archives or listening live and they email in. One of our investors writes, greetings, Gus. Number one, since the 1980s, the Philadelphia local news media, including newspapers and TV, every year has an interviewed the murdered policewoman's, policeman's wife and prosecutors in order to reinforce Mumia's supposed guilt, having a tearful white woman, mm -mm, the weeping white woman, uh, on TV every year was very effective. Of course, I do not recall any similar TV interviews of his wife proclaiming his innocence. Number two, Mumia has often been described as a political prisoner. Webster, definition, a person who is put in prison because of his or her political beliefs. 
Britannica definition, a person who is imprisoned because the person's actions or beliefs are contrary to those of his or her government. Compensatory word guide, nearly for the junior, junior, abbreviated from the word guide, used this term with caution during the existence of white supremacy racism and, according to compensatory counter-racist logic, all of the non-white people of the known universe are the political prisoners of the white supremacists, racists of the known universe. Greater confinement, that is the uh, term. I think I mentioned that last week. You can just get in smaller, smaller, and smaller boxes. Put you in solitary. Sprinkle in some more of these as we proceed. Uh, If you are with us and you have comments you would like to share, feel free. I will have a lot more to say after the second audio commentary. My goodness, but I have notes uh, for this section as well. Uh, Folks who are with us, hand up. Line should be open. Proceed. Hey, how you doing, Gus? Man, cold. It's like 33 degrees here in Seattle. Right, poorly, and cold. <laughs> All right. I'm in, I'm in the West Coast. I mean, I'm on the East Coast, so um, it's um, equally um, bad. Um, uh, oh, I just wanted to say something before I begin. Um, I'm still having trouble accessing um, iTunes. Um, I, I don't I don't know what the problem is, so... I'm still having trouble with iTunes. Every other podcast works except um, yours. Um, listening to this book, um, I just love how uh, the author um, points out the many contradictions um, as it relates to uh, the judicial system. Um, also, uh, when he was talking about Clinton, anytime Clinton uh, got in trouble, um, he reverted back to, um, I don't know if you want to call it the um, Southern strategy, um, you know, stoking the fears of um, uh, white, white races and also um, being tough on crime, tough on crime, um, cold word. Some would say meaning tough on black people. Um, uh, thinking back to Barack Obama's presidency, he had to revert to that a couple of times. You know, just to basically reassure white America, like you know, I got, you know, I got my eye on the Negroes. Um, Waco, Texas. Um, I re- I remember that. I really wasn't sure, um, you know, what that was about. But again and again, um, this country is never, never hesitant to use violence, um, even on white citizens. Um, also, how he pointed out um, just the contradictions of um, always using um, Martin Luther King as a martyr of uh, nonviolence, as a symbol of nonviolence, um, why every, every aspect, every uh, um, the whole existence of uh, this this nation ran by um, white races has been nothing but violent. Um, it's something else I wanted to say. Um, it's um, I'm, it slipped my memory, so I'll come back um, after everybody else has said something. It'll it'll definitely come back to me. Thanks a lot. Much obliged, good sir. I'm sorry to hear you're still having trouble with the iTunes feed. That has been a decade. Uh, I did check it uh, just as you said it, and it was working uh, on my end, but 
a lot of people have had uh, problems, myself included, with the iTunes feed. Uh, if you want to drop me an email, untiljustice at gmail.com. It is uh, the program. The archives are available at SoundCloud, uh, Black Talk Radio Network, uh, YouTube, and a number of other uh, platforms. Uh, but iTunes, man, system of white supremacy. Expect massive interference. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have thoughts, suggestions, questions, proceed. Soon folks are take a moment to get their thoughts together. I will go through some of uh, my notes and then check back, see if folks are ready to roll with the rest of their commentary. Uh, the ch- uh, Yeah, well... Essay. These are essays, so not chapters. So the es- essay, Expert Witness from Hell, uh, where he talks about Glendale and his conviction, and they had the expert, scientific expert, uh, Fred Zane. We've heard about this repeatedly. Uh, I think the very first program uh, that we did, Chet Detlinger, the list, this was something that he talked about passionately, and he said in 2009 that he knew a lot of these guys that were coming in court and testifying about Carpet, carpet fabrics uh, and a hair or a fingernail or a blood sample or something. He said he knew a lot of these guys were lying, that they were coming in there with their highfalutin degrees uh, and their white lab coat, and frequently it is a white man or a white woman, and they get to come, to, oh, yes, I'm an expert witness. I've got all my degrees piled up. Now you've got that uh, college degree scandal, too, for, so whatever those degrees are worth. But yeah, oh, yes, I've got all my degrees, and I've got my bow tie. And I'm an absolute scholar, and I'm sure that that nigga did it. That's what it all boils down to. As they get through how many degrees they got and how much time they've spent, it's, oh, yeah, that nigga did it, and I checked the science. And then you can go back, and how many times this has happened? Now you can go back to, that was 2000, 2015. The FBI crime lab admitted that they had hundreds of samples that were wrong, and it was the same thing. It's never all of these expert witnesses come into the courtroom and, oh, yeah, we checked the results, and it's absolutely negative. Uh, A nigger may have raped this white woman, or a nigger may have stolen uh, the goods, but it was not this nigger. We checked the results, and absolutely, he has been uh, disqualified. Cannot be. It was conclusive, and it's not this one. Mamiya didn't do it. It's not that it comes back that. It, it comes back land. Like they said in the 2015 report that it was like 90% of the errors were for the prosecution, that we know what we're talking about, and the fingerprints are a match. The DNA is a match. That nigga did it. That's what it was every time. When it's that consistent that you're wrong and you're consistently wrong in favor of racists and wrong where it's harmful to black people, that's why I say this is not ignorance all white people never get the benefit of the doubt. It's assumed that Fred Zane and anybody else doing this that are resulting in what they call it the prison industrial, con, uh, prison industrial complex where they just stuff niggers in, that's not an accident. That's being done, by purpo- that's being done on purpose. Uh, next, let's see. Do, 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 do. Life ruined, yes, yes. And these people, not they, that was the same pattern in 2015, and it's a number of these cases uh, where they got the information wrong. Dr. Curry talks about that all the time. They got all these prosecutions for black person who sexually assaulted somebody, the people who more often than not with the same type of thing, DNA exoneration, black males, all of these false positives, whoops, somebody, you know, 
poked a finger in the lab results and messed it up. Whoops. Sorry about that. Sorry you messed up the last 10 years of your life. Whoops. Sorry about that. Uh, that was in the, in the, uh, the Duke rape case where it was a, a black dancer, and she said that those white guys had raped her. Even in that case, it was a white prosecutor who was doing the same thing, lab results, and they were messed up. They did a whole ESPN documentary on that. Uh, demand for death. I talked about this before. I said, I mentioned this two weeks ago. We mentioned it in the book club where I said this exactly. I said that you can request uh, to die if you're on death row. You can request, like, I'm tired. I don't want to hang out here. Let's speed it up. I thought it was an important observation that Mumia made where this white guy on death row said, hey, I'm out of it. I, I don't want to hang out here. You got me cooped up with all these niggas. I'm a white man. This is not what my life's supposed to be about. This is what you do with niggas. They, they expect this. He pointed that out. This is a part of their culture. They brag about how many times they've been in jail. That's the system that we've set up because we know we're not going to let them do anything. But I'm a white man. I'm not supposed to be here. Oh, my Lord. This is all I have to look forward to. Get me out of here now. He says, uh, for whites, however, even working class whites, prison is a mark of social expulsion. Means it's Basically, it's designed for niggas. That's what they're telling you. White people aren't supposed to be here. If you're a white man, white woman, you're not supposed to be here. Niggas are supposed to be here. Mumia and the like. Rodney King and the like. Uh, blacks have a longer history of rejection from this society. See, even that, I said in the description, I am not enjoying the reread of this book. I like this. The first time I read it, I am not enjoying it this time around at all. And we'll have a lot more to say about that when we get to the second audio segment. But for now have a longer history of rejection from this society than the relatively recent era of grudging acceptance. I don't even know what that is, grudging acceptance. He's sitting to write an essay about Rodney King. Was Rodney King accepted grudgingly? This book was published literally days, literally days before the O.J. Simpson trial. Accepted grudgingly? He just talked about uh, President Clinton rebuking Sister Soldier and all these black people. Did, was she accepted grudgingly? Al Sharpton, <laughs> like, man. Continuing, uh, the three strikes. I thought it was interesting, more than interesting. I thought it was important. This is why I say again, you got to have a white woman, uh, Noelle Hanrahan. Maybe she wouldn't have helped publish all of this if he had been saying white supremacy racism. I don't know how you can write two separate essays on the prison industrial complex and the term racism not be used. You can call it pork. You can bring up Democrats and Republicans, so-called squabbling with each other. Got to get tough on crime. You even mentioned how President Clinton, he goes to see this execution, uh, and that's appealing to the lowest common denominator. That's not practicing white supremacy racism. Specifics are important. I will say a lot more about that with some bass in my voice when we get to the second audio segment. Remind me of Sue Africa for the whole week reading this. Um, a bill that is, yeah, he wrote, he wrote two consecutive essays about three strikes and you're out and all of this. This is, I mean, something that they talked about intensely over the past, what was it, two, three years, especially uh, 2016. Hillary Clinton, she had to be accountable, so they say, for her role in this and the super predators and all that. They talked about it. Almost every conversation that came up, the word racism was used. In fact, they even had some of those black people out yelling at former President Clinton uh, when he, I think he was in Philadelphia. Let me double check. Let me go back and double check. I think it was when he was in Philadelphia and he got all mad and busted them and they said, oh, 
uh-oh. Bill Maher, I remember that was one of those moments where they fussed at black people and said, see there, no good black people. It's your fault that Donald Trump got elected because you're sitting here wrangling with the Clintons over a crime bill from 20 years ago, and he apologized for that. And you all want to sit around and talk about she's a racist and disrupt campaigns. That's how th- th- All of that was 2016 related to exactly what he's talking about here with the crime bill, except they said racism every time. Racism does not get mentioned here directly. And again, if I was on death row, I probably wouldn't be saying white supremacy, racism either. I'd be saying, man, anybody, can you please help me get out of here? Next, let's see. The education grant, I mean, that's greater confinement. They, uh, you, you, <laughs> Negroes are not supposed to be educated. They don't even want to educate the Negroes that are not in greater confinement. Uh, let's see. Musings, part three. Just going through the chapters, picking out, and I'll check back with the folks who dialed in. Uh, I'm going over the life of Malcolm X. Mm, Thought it was important, him reminding the hypocrisy, I think our listener pointed out, and white people's history of terrorism on the planet. Uh, Let's see. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, the revival. That, I thought that was interesting where he talks about. Yes, the whole section where he talks about Minister Malcolm X and his attitude change, where he comes back from Mecca, where he says uh, the media, as Malcolm predicted would attempt to homogenize, whiten, and distort his message. How many times, how many have read of him in a recent newspaper described as a civil rights leader, a term he loathes, stories tell of his softening towards whites after his sojourn to Mecca, conveniently ignoring that Malcolm continued to revile white Americans still in the grips of, racist, of a racist system that crushes black life. Malik found among white-skinned Arabs and European converts to Islam a oneness that he found lacking in Americans so deeply entrenched was racism in American whites that Malcolm Malik sensed intrinsic difference in how the two people saw and described themselves. Arabs calling themselves white referred simply to skin tone. That is false. He, no one listening, will be able to provide evidence to present someone who is classified as white who has white skin tone. You have never seen it. I generally don't speak with that much confidence, but I don't care who's listening. On this day, December 2019, the 26th, you have never seen an individual with white skin tone. Not correct. And these so-called white Arabs and European Arabs, if they're classified as white, they are more informed about what they think, their worldviews, and how they treat non-white people than you are. All of that, again, I would come back to, are we in a global system of racism, white supremacy? How are the black people treated by the so-called white Arabs anywhere in the world? How are the white Muslims, how do they treat white European Muslims? How do they treat black people anywhere in the world? What does it mean to be white? That's the question I ask on this program all the time. There's a reason. Uh, Let's see. Next. Deja vu. This was an important. Now I can start to put a little bit more bass in my voice, bass in my voice about why I had so much uh, unpleasantness, lack of enjoyment, 
reading this book the second time around, and I had to narrate it, so it was like a double whammy. He compared what that coon on the compensatory call in talks about comparisons. Now, he did a whole essay comparing the move situation, the move bombing in 1995, 1985, I'm sorry, Mother's Day, May 1985, to the bombing of the David Koresh branch in Waco, Texas in the mid-1990s. These two situations are not the same. Now, I could be in error, but I don't think so. I think David Koresh, that there's evidence that he was engaged in criminal activity, sexually raping children, one. Now, if that's not true, hey, I am misinformed. I'll step forward. But I think there's some evidence that they were doing something incorrect. I have not heard that with the move situation. It was they were upset because these black people were promoting self-defense and blah, blah, blah. I have not heard where they are engaged in criminal activity, raping children or whatever else that it is. Even beyond all of that, if we want to get into, you know, what was this warranted? I believe there was a substantial standoff at the Waco situation. They didn't just, you know, immediately go in, guns ablaze. They tried to wait them out. The move situation, May 1985, all that was over in about one day. I think they came in on Saturday, and by Sunday, whammo, we have burned down the whole neighborhood. Next, I vividly remember, and it would not take me 30 seconds to get online right now, there were a whole lot of white government officials who came out and apologized and said, oh, my goodness, we messed up. We shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. Wow. I'm so sad. I don't remember that at all with the move situation. Not that I watched it live, but we have done a lot of study on moves. I think you will struggle to find powerful white. Like you saw Janet Reno and the people with ATF, tobacco, and firearms who came out to, oh, man, we botched this. This is terrible. Loss of life. One of the worst days on, on, on the job. That didn't happen at all with move. They came out and called them insurgents and terrorists everything but a child of God, there was no, oh, man, we sure did mess up. No, they should still be here. We shouldn't have killed all those. We shouldn't have killed all those black people, males, females, and children, and we should not have burned down only over 60 owned black houses, exclusively black owned houses in the middle of Philadelphia. Man, we sure shouldn't have done that. That didn't happen with the move situation. It was, oh, well, niggas should have behaved themselves. Almost to a man and a woman with everyone involved. Oh, well, niggas should have behaved themselves. And that's pretty much the official record to this day, almost 2020. You can go back and check the documentary film on that one. Anybody, if I'm in error, you can speak up loudly on this one. But I think that is grossly uh, inaccurate to say that move is the same or similar at all to what happened with David Koresh. And I would uh, assert that that's another example of man. Don't want to upset these white people. Let's see if we can push this in a narrative because a lot of white people, even Timothy McVeigh, who blew up the Oklahoma City building, he was there. He was upset about what happened there. That motivated a whole lot of white people. I didn't see Timothy McVeigh get upset about the move situation. I didn't hear Timothy McVeigh say, oh, yeah, this government tyranny must stop. The move situation and the way that they're treating black people, look at O.J. Simpson. I'm going to Oklahoma. Maybe I'm misinformed. Let's see. Anything else? I want to make sure I get in. Uh, I guess the only other thing I'll say really quick, they say consistently, Joe Fegan, oh, he mentioned Joe Fegan, make sure I get that in. He mentioned Joe Fegan, who was a guest on the program, Two-Faced Racism, very constructive book, actually authored by someone classified as white who talks in depth 
about what it means to be white and gives further evidence that white people are not ignorant about racism. He was on the, on the program in 2010. We discussed his book. But he mentions him uh, as being one of the ones who did one of these studies on how frequently black people are pummeled and terrorized by enforcement officials. I'll just say what I said again. White people are not ignorant about racism. Now, how is it they stand here, 21st century, 20 years after this book was published and say, oh, man, this Tamir Rice thing, this Sandra Bland thing, this Eric Garner thing, this Michael Brown Jr. thing, you know, these, these black people getting gunned down in the streets by police, I don't know anything about that. Well, wait a minute. They had all these studies back when Rodney King, wait a minute, Joe Figgett is a white man, so I'm pretty sure some other white people read this white man's study. How is it that white people forget that they have amnesia when all of these shootings keep coming up and keep coming up and keep coming up? How is it that they forget that they don't remember? I'll hush you. Other folks who dialed in, if you have comments, a hand, something you would. Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Gosh, you stole my thunder. I was coming at the move, but I, I'll read it. But, uh, man, what you were saying, man, wrong many times um, with the evidence um, according to white people, you know, just doesn't fit later when they reexamine it. Um, just last week, at my TV view put out an article. I want people to Google it. I'm just going to read the title. A U.S. government study confirms most facial recognition systems are racist. Okay, so now these are going to be the ones <laughs> putting us in greater confinement um, because it, it, it said it told the white people we did it, even though it wasn't us. So um, just read that article. Very, very, very compelling. Poor Rodney King, um, 1992 small uprising. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like... Um, Man, you, we could make a movie um, with um, Abdul um, Jamal's um, life. It's sort of like Forrest Gump, like all these events happened. And he was like kind of a part of it, but he, you know, from a journalistic position, but from prison, you know, it's like amazing, you know what I'm saying? But all these things happened and he's, you know, as you always say, reporting on a lot of this stuff quite accurately. Um, prison bankrupting the country. Um, slave labor is the backbone of the country. More prisons, more money. Um, 1866 Civil Rights Act. You know, it is what it is. So I don't think that will happen. I think that, um, you know, he's not seeing a bigger picture there. Um, David Koresh, Waco, Texas. Um, they didn't get the move organization treat. Um, not only were they raping children, he was marrying the little girls. I mean, it was court documents with his name on them. Uh, they spent about a good week playing loud rock and roll music outside the house. You remember that, Gus? They was playing music, trying to wean them mm-hmm. out with the loud music. And um, the fire took place inside the house. They didn't drop an incendiary um, device on that house. I mean, he burnt the house down. I mean, I don't know, Gus. I mean, it, it's not the same story. It's not even comparable. Um, they did not go and play loud rap music for a week in front of the move house. You know, like you said, it was quite a block, even with a white woman in the house. You know, um, it is, you know, they didn't, they, you know, they were very quick to make moves on the move. Um, the Clintons, man, he left out. Yeah, they every time he had a um, trouble, he would crack down on blacks. But every time he got in trouble, he will end up in a black church. Uh, every time, he'll be up in the first front row and people just gospeling to him. I mean, it was like, 
those two things went together. Um, but I love anyone who talks bad about the Clintons. He did not call them racist. I don't see how he could not call them racist. She called us super predators to push that crime bill that put millions of black people behind prison for nonviolent crimes for years that are unimaginable. You know, we used to call them getting football numbers, you know. You up there, you know, you're not getting a number one or two. You up in the 30s, 40s, you know, for drugs. And it was ridiculous. Uh, and every, every Democrat voted yes on that almost, including Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. You know, they were there. They, that's how long they've been there. And um, I think that's all I'm going to say for now, Gus. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Uh, I'm just reading a PBS there. I mean, there's been lots of reports on this and that sort of thing. I'm reading from PBS. Uh, two ATF supervisors were fired uh, as a result of this. It does say that eventually they were reinstated at a lower rank. White people don't get fired. They are transferred and or reinstated. Uh, but I don't even remember that with MOVE. I don't remember them coming out and saying, oh, man. Look here, you burned down this whole not, you didn't just burn down a compound or a house. You burned down an entire black neighborhood. Uh you're gonna lose two vacation days. I don't even remember that. It was just, eh, really sad. Niggas should have behaved themselves. That's not what they said with Waco at all. You got white people to this white government officials. Janet Reno said that was her darkest day in office. That's not what uh enforcement officials or anybody else connected with the Philadelphia move situation said today. Or back then, either or. Uh, let's see. Anything else I want to make sure? Oh, the cops, the Rodney King thing. When he writes and begins talking about Officer Stacy Coon. Now, as I was reading it, I almost stopped narrating. Because I said, man, is he writing something? Not that it's sympathizing with Stacy Coon, but you're writing a piece talking about how Stacy Coon's constitutional rights have been violated and this case should be overturned. It was not. Now, that's using hindsight. It was not. If anything, people questioned, wow, why were their sentences so low? If they got convicted in federal court, why didn't they get a longer sentence? They got a few months. Why wasn't that? Or that in fact, that was challenged uh, on appeal, but they lost. Not, oh, man, you're trying them again. This is a bad precedent. That's the sort of thing that they do to black people all the time anyway. They didn't need uh, Officer Coon to set a precedent for that. Look at Curtis Flowers. Six times, and he just got out of jail, but six times tried for the same crime uh, in Mississippi. Just let him out a couple of days ago, probably looking to try him for a seventh time. Uh, but I thought just, wow, why would, why would that be an assessment? I'm a black male on death row, and I'm going to write an essay. Might even, might, they might not even allow me to have a pencil or pen, but I'm going to take the limited resources I have to write an essay on Stacey Kuhn and how it's wrong that they're going to prosecute him again, just on the legal means. Just looking at it from a, an unbiased, he, he had already said that he is biased. And he was talking about the Black Panthers, so you would be biased when we're talking about the police. But just looking at it from a legal grounds and how this will relate to black people. To me, as I said, it just doesn't make sense because they don't need a precedent. They're already doing that sort of thing to black people, trying them over for the same crime. Anything else? There are a lot of alliterations in this book, and for someone who – I'm talking about myself – I don't like poetry. I've been very clear about that for a decade. Uh, that's why we don't do books on poetry and racism and all that. Be clear. Be precise. We're not just saying things to sound cute. We're not just saying things to sound nice. Let me say that again. We're not just saying things to sound cool. 
We're not just saying things to sound nice. Remember that I said that when we get to the second audio segment. Uh, but I don't like all the alliteration. Alliterations, you have uh, repeating uh, consonants. You just keep repeating the same sound. Uh, Sally sells seashells by the seashore. That's an alliteration. We just keep doing those S's. And Mumia does that in this writing a lot. When I see someone who's doing that, where their writing has that kind of uh, poetic feel to it and rhyming and that sort of thing, I generally think, now, is this person more concerned about how their writing sounds and sounding cool, or are they more concerned about writing accurate, logical information? That's a major. We're not writing trying to sound cool. We're not rapping. This is not poetry. We're trying to give out accurate information. It's a whole lot of alliterations. And why I slowed down the Sally Cells, because it's hard to, to uh, orally read. If you're just reading it to yourself, you can just, oh, look at that. That's cool. You might not even notice it. But if you're reading out loud, oh, yeah, you will notice. Uh, and in my view, it doesn't do anything to add to the quality of the writing. It certainly does not make it more uh, coherent. Uh, sometimes it just seems like uh, calling attention to words. Let me give you a good example. Do, 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 do. Okay, 160. This is on page 161. He's talking about the black female. They destroyed her house. He says, uh, Mrs. Anthony received no warning before the jaws of the baleful backhoe bit into the bricks. There are better ones, but that's one right now with all those bees. There are lots of that uh, in the text. And again, I mean, just be direct. Uh, the facts will hold my attention. I don't need a lot of cute-sounding uh, <laughs> poetry. Uh, and that's just personal preference as a reader uh, and a writer. Uh, I appreciated the commentary on Nelson Mandela. Whites are very tacky. Uh, we'll present a victim of racism and a racist at the same time and give them both a freedom award. There are lots of examples of that sort of thing. Um, last thing I'll get in. I, he started that chapter on Mandela and DeClerc coming to Philadelphia, brotherly love, to get the Freedom Medal for the 4th of July. But he started with a big quote from Frederick Douglass's speech on what to the slave is the 4th of July. I don't ever want to hear that speech again. Not that it doesn't have value, but I would much rather address why he gave that speech over 150 years ago as opposed to continuing to read it every 4th of July. How many times can you read that speech over and over? Frederick Douglass wrote many, many things. I mean, hey, we can put that down and go get some of his other writings, which give a lot of information, cowbell included, than just reading the same old speech. What to the slave is the fourth? That was a part of it, too, where it read, this book has not aged well, in my opinion. Uh, I don't even like hearing people read Frederick Douglass' speech now uh, on the 4th of July. Like, I'm good. I've heard it before. I don't want to read it anymore. Yes, Frederick Douglass did a lot, I think, as opposed to us just waiting around for every 4th of July. He would want us to solve the problem that made him give that speech to begin with. Anybody else have any other thoughts that they wanted to give? Especially if anybody thought that the comparison between Move and the Branch Davidian situation is accurate, that that's, those are two similar events, then definitely speak up. While folks are waiting, I'll read some of the other emails. Uh, greetings, Gus. After reading the chapter titled Expert Witness from Hell, I did a casual search of DNA evidence and false convictions. Number one, National Registry of Wrong Convictions due to DNA evidence, 1974 through 2016, 133 wrong convictions due to DNA, uh, DNA 55 African-Americans, 38 Caucasians, 7 Hispanics, 
69% involved crimes against white, 13% involved crimes against African Americans, 6% against Hispanics, and 12% unknown. Number two, 2016, New York State Crime Lab scientists accused cops of intimidating scientists into falsifying DNA evidence. Number three, the false promise of DNA testing. The forensics test is becoming even ever more common and ever less reliable. Matthew Shear, The Atlantic, 2016. Does this sway anyone's opinion regarding the death penalty? Uh-oh. <laughs> Oh, I think that was Thomas in New York because you talked about that before. This is what I said. Like, if this is going to be all throughout the system, at every point they give you a, an attorney and say, oh, yeah, that's Constitution. You got proper representation. And then your attorney falls asleep during the trial or is racist or doesn't, you know, make an effort to defend you and you get convicted. And they say, well, you had a lower tough, tough nookie. If it's going to be all of that, you get white people get to come in during the trial and lie and say that you did something or we check the results. It's his fingerprints. And they trying to, oh, he didn't even check him. He just, you know, nigga looked guilty, so I said, I thought it was his fingerprints. If it's going to be filled with all of that, I'm good. <laughs> no death penalty, none of the rest of it. I'm good. Uh, anybody else have comments, questions they need to get in? Spectacular. We'll get to the second audio segment. You can make a note if you have anything else to share. Oh, man. This is why. The second audio segment, I was already perturbed. I had to read that Frederick Douglass uh, portion of the speech. He had the comparison between Move uh, and the Branch Davidian situation. It was quite a few things that were like, hey, I'm not really feeling this. The second audio segment, oh, man, when he focused on Move, Sue Africa. If you didn't hear that white woman on the program back in 2016 who was in Move, uh, he talks about not everybody in Move was black. There were white members, and we had one of them on the program. There's no way I can listen to all of this and not think of Sue Africa. And I just keep saying, not understanding racism, white supremacy, that is exactly how you will end up being a comrade of Sue Africa. When you don't understand what it means to be white, you think white people have white skin tone and all the rest of it, that's how you'll end up in a house next to Sue Africa talking about this is my white sister. Getting to the second audio segment. Mumia Abu-Jamal live from death row. I wish we were done today, but not quite. A little bit more to go. This is our second audio segment, Context of White Supremacy. The Lost Generation? Recent published reports have lamented the fact that African-American youth are remarkably resistant and virtually unresponsive to traditional big-name public relations and big-time sports figures when they use the major media to attempt to communicate with younger blacks. The study found deep and profound alienation among youth and a fundamental streak of fatalism about the promise of tomorrow, a sense that Tomorrow may not come, so let's live today. The youth, while they view large blocks of TV, perceive it from the position of outsiders, knowing that the dramas, comedies, and news programs are not designed for their consumption. Only the herbotech musical form known as rap touches them for it is born of urban youth consciousness and speaks to them in their idiom about lives lived on the margins. It is this profound disassociation that forced some nouveau middle-class blacks to lament the youth as the lost generation. 
but are they really lost? And if so, to whom? The Martinetian black revolutionary Frantz Fanon once opined that every generation must find its destiny and fulfill it or betray it. In my father's generation, southern born of the late 1890s, their destiny was to move their families north to lands with the promise of a better life away from our hateful homelands in Dixie. The dreams of that generation sparked by visions of new homes, better education, new cars, and prosperity were in relative terms realized by some, but northbound African Americans were never able to outrun the stigma of racism. By the time the 1950s and 1960s generation came of age during the Nixon-Reagan-Bush eras, race once again defined the limits of black aspirations and with the shifting of manufacturing jobs back down south and abroad, so went dreams of relative prosperity. The children of this generation, born into sobering poverty amid shimmering opulence, their minds weaned on Falcon, Crestian TV execs while locked in want, watching while sinister politicians spit on their very existence, are the hip-hop rap generation. Locked out of the legal means of material survival, looked down upon by the predatory politicians and police left with the least relevant educational opportunities, talked at with contempt and not talked to with love, is there any question why such youth are alienated? Why the surprise? They look at the lives they live and see not civil rights progress, but a drumbeat of civil repression by a state at war with their dreams. Why the surprise? This is not the lost generation. They are the children of the L.A. rebellion, the children of the move bombing, the children of the Black Panthers, and the grandchildren of Malcolm. Far from lost, they are probably the most aware generation since Nat Turner's. They are not so much lost as they are mislaid, discarded by this increasingly racist system that undermines their inherent worth. They are all potential revolutionaries with the historic power to transform our dull realities. If they are lost, find them. June 1992 blues for Huey. The blaring trumpet of African exile Hugh Masakella screams out of the speaker at the door of the storefront on North Philly's Columbia Avenue, soaring, plummeting, slicing a sharp, clear cut through the thick, muggy midsummer midday mist, playing blues for Huey. The author sits hypnotized by the horn, stiffened into a stupor by the Masakella sound, brassy, acute, clean, powerful, full of the melancholy sounds of tears, pain, and soggy lust, crafted in dusty Soweto shabines, laced with the newfound militants of the black U.S. youth, Africa and Afro-America, reunited in Masakella's righteous horn, reignited into one fire. Blues for Huey blared from Philadelphia's Panther office. That awesome instrumental came unbidden into my consciousness when the news burst that Huey P. Newton, 
once the Minister of Defense of the Black Panther Party was found shot to death in an Oakland street. It hit like Masakela solo in the gut, in the heart. It's amazing that Huey was almost 50. It's almost more amazing that Huey's tragedy and ours could be met by the innocent query of millions of black teens and preteens. Huey who? I had to reach back some 20 summers to summon up blues for Huey, that bittersweet set that may or may not have been in homage to Newton. Some songs mark an era and this energetic tune does that for me. Always a small fry in the Panther organization, I met the defense minister only once when he came to Philadelphia and I was assigned to bodyguard duties. I doubted he knew my name, but I loved him. Huey, self-taught, brilliant, taciturn, strong-willed, molded the righteous indignation and rage of an oppressed people into a national, militant, revolutionary, nationalist organization. His courageous spirit touched the downtrodden black America's so-called lumpen proletariat classes and energized them into a bald fist of angry resistance, prompting FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's observation that the party posed the most serious threat to America's internal security. Huey woke up the historically ignored strata of black life and put them in the service of the people via breakfast programs and free clothing programs and organized units of community self-defense. To the U.S. ruling class, this stirring of black life into liberational activity proved too much. Enter the dogs of deception. The government unleashed the FBI, whose function, in Hoover's words, was to frustrate every effort to consolidate forces or to recruit new or youthful members by the party which at its apex had chapters in 45 U.S. cities. Government efforts at disruption were swift and deadly. Setups with regional police became routine, sparked by America's historic phobia about niggers with guns, and in the aftermath some 38 Panthers were shot down by racist cops. Party ranks were riddled with FBI paid agent provocateurs and informants. Paranoia swelled as cop raids grew in frequency and intensity, beggaring the party through bails and legal fees. By the mid-1970s, the party, split by government disruption and internal strife, suffering from a sharp membership decline, faded from the world's stage. Huey, a supreme commander without a command, a visionary with no outlet for his vision, a revolutionary bereft of a revolutionary party, retrogressed into the fascination of the street hustlers of his Oakland youth, the pimps, the players, the illegitimate capitalists, as he called them, called him. It was, to be sure, a fatal attraction. Huey was, it must be said, no godling, no saint. He was, however, intensely human, curious, acutely brilliant, a lover of all the world's children, an incapable foe of all the world's oppressors. He rapped philosophy with the late Chinese premier Cho Inlay. He met Mao. He supped with North Korea's Kim Il-sung. He was a guest of Castro. Huey Percy Newton, by his will and great heart, marked his age with militants making a noble contribution 
to the black liberation struggle. That he could die at the hands of a crack fiend is sobering testament to how low he and we have fallen. The best memorial to such a one is to purge our communities of the poison that plagued and finally plugged a truly remarkable man and to use the highlights of his memory to spark a renewal in revolutionary consciousness. August 1989 Philly Days An Impressionistic Memoir If Wallace would dare to run for president in Philadelphia, we, four black North Philly teens, would dare to protest in his white honky face if need be. So we did, Eddie, Alvin, Dave, and I, we began by boarding the Broad Street subway and riding to the end. Four afros amid a sea of blondes, brunettes, and redheads entering the citadel of urban white racist sentiment to confront the Alabaman. We must have been insane. We strolled into the stadium, four lanky dark string beans in a pot full of white steaming limas. The band played Dixie. We shouted Black Power, Ngawa, Black Power. They shouted Wallace for President, White Power, and send those niggers back to Africa. We shouted Black Power, Ngawa. Don't ask us what Ngawa means. We didn't know. All we knew was that it had a hell of a ring to it. Black Power, they hissed and booed. We stood up in our seats and proudly gave the Black Power salute. In answer, we received dubious gifts of spittle from those seated above. Patriots tore American flags from their standards and hurled the bare sticks at us. Wallace, wrapped in roars of approval, waxed eloquent. When I become president, these dirty, unwashed radicals will have to move to the Soviet Union. You know, all throughout this campaign, these radicals have been demonstrating against George Corley Wallace. Well, I hope they have the guts to lay down in front of my car. I'll drive right over them. The crowd went wild. Helmeted cops came and told us we must leave. We protested, but were escorted out, perhaps a little relieved. Outside, Eddie, Alvin, Dave, and I saw a few other blacks from Temple University and a group of young whites also thrown out of the rally. We gathered at the bus station to get on the sea for North Philly. But before we could board, we were attacked by several white men. One of them had a lead and leather slapjack. Outarmed and outnumbered, we fought back, but fourteens were no match for eight to ten grown men. I was grabbed by two of them, one kicking my skull while the other kicked me in the balls. Then I looked up and saw the two-toned, gold-trimmed pant leg of a Philly cop. Without thinking and reacting from years of brainwashing, I yelled, Help! Police! The cop saw me on the ground, being beaten to a pulp, marched over briskly, 
and kicked me in the face. I have been thankful to that faceless cop ever since for he kicked me straight into the Black Panther Party. Summer in North Philly is a little like paradise to a young dude. It's so hot that sweat runs like rain in the Amazon. The air is thick with energy so real that you can smell heartbeats. The heat hangs like a haze, a loving, sticky, sweet hug of Mother Nature on black flesh. Defense Captain Ridge narrows his eyes in a paternal smile. Hey, Lieutenant, it's too hot to work. Come on, and let's get a taste. The two leave the dim Panther storefront and cross Columbia Avenue to Webb's Bar. Johnny Webb, a man born to work with people, serves up a toothy grin and welcomes the two Panthers into his cool, dark den. He wipes the glassy bar top and serves up the drinks. The captain takes a shot and the younger Panther orders a bitter dog, a Philly refinement on the West Coast's bitter motherfucker both composed of red wine and citrus, grapefruit in the MF, lemon in the dog. It's cool and tangy going down and both the captain and the information lieutenant cool out in their own way. James Brown serves up Southern Shout from the jukebox and Mumia screws up enough courage to ask a sister to dance. It's the bitter dog dancing cause the lieutenant can't his awkwardness causing the whole house to rock with laughter, both at his unique style, if it can be called that, and at his beat-up, scuffed-up, toes bent up to look like Arabian slippers, boots, which don't help much. Gents, a dark, lovely sister from California, laughs almost to a burst. Mumia, his ears throbbing from James Brown, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud and wanting a breath of fresh air, sticks his head out the front door and sees two white men dressed in army jackets kicking in the front door of the Panther office across the street. The buzz from the bitter dog evaporates. Reg, yo Reg, somebody breaking in the office. The young lieutenant turns back to the street and focuses on a 38 special close enough to touch. Freeze, nigger. If you fucking blink, I'll blow your black goddamn head off your shoulders. Red strobes sweep the summer night. Mumia freezes and the bitter dog transforms itself into cold sweat. The man holding the gun smiles, sort of. His teeth are bared, but his eyes are like blue glaciers. His face and neck glow in a red flash. This is it, the young panther lieutenant thinks. The thirty-eight is so close that he can smell gun oil. Across the street, white men are throwing files and papers into the street. There I was in the 1970s, a bored, slightly petted bourgeois, burnout ex-black panther, who distrusted organizations and still simmered in a stew of generational rebellion. I felt all dressed up with no place to go. The Panthers to whom I had loaned my life were sputtering in internecine, bicoastal and bloody feud, East Coast against West Coast, 
those aligned with the then Minister of Information, Eldridge Cleaver, on the east against those siding with once Minister of Defense, Huey P. Newton, on the west. Cleaver was an idol to me, Newton, whom I had once served as a bodyguard, a hero. The prospect of us fighting one another sickened me. I didn't join the BPP to get in a goddamn gang war, I thought angrily to myself. Shit, I could have stayed in North Philly for this dumb shit. The Panthers had established a bona fide, show-nuff diplomatic relations with progressive and revolutionary states and movements across the globe, the People's Republic of China, North Korea, Congo, Brazil, the African National Congress, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, Cuba, and the like. The government of Algeria granted land for the Black Panther Party International Section, the first embassy of the African American people of North America. By 1974, the state's militia had slaughtered more than 30 militants and jailed many more, had seated branch offices with informers and agents provocateurs, had tapped phones, covered mail, destroyed party property. Then there was an on-TV feud between Eldridge and Huey set up by an obliging white newsman that had resulted in two deaths. Blood for blood, east for west, panthers croaking panthers. I knew both men. Frustrated, angry, I drifted away from a party that had drifted away from its moorings in the people. Bitterly, I told myself that I would never join another organization. I would support, send money, write agit prop, but join? Nothing happening. No, sir. Uh-uh. Not me. Then I met Move. Philly, like its northern cousin, New York, is a talk radio town. The pace, the political life, the sheer size of such cities makes them good breeding grounds for talk radio. Retirees, night shift workers, the unemployed, part-timers, and crackpots all contribute to the potpourri of talk radio. Back in the mid-1970s, a veteran announcer and all-around broadcaster named Wynn Moore began talk in Philly in a big way, virtually overnight transforming a jazz outlet into an organ for word mongers. Tall, meaty, with piercing eyes, a pointed Van Dyke, and a bass voice that rolled around the basement, that was when Moore. As program director for WWDBFM, he assembled a madcap core of talk jocks, insurance salesmen, students, and newsreaders. I was one of them. He juggled us, shook us up until we fizzed, then turned us loose on the Delaware Valley. Ratings grew. Opinions flew like hatchets in a Chinese restaurant. Right-wing hosts had to abide left-wing listeners and vice versa. Everything that was anything and everybody that was anybody passed through DB's doors and hit the microphones. Politicians, writers, activists, sports stars, psychics, economists, and assorted loons. You name them, all were welcome on DB's airwaves. Almost all, anyway. 
One day, I aired a brief cut from an interview with MOVE members demonstrating at the offices of the Philadelphia Tribune, a newspaper written for black Philadelphians. From the day I was first hired at DB, I sought audio from live sources by going to demos, news conferences, events, and incidents. Any place, anywhere, anytime for a soundbite. That was me. Except for world news. I never used the wires. For me, a day without audio was like a day without sunshine, and I loved sunshine. Still do. My move cut was brief, and not particularly offensive unless you happen to be an employee of the Philadelphia Tribune. So after the hourly newscast, I was surprised to hear a familiar voice roaring at me. Mumia, as long as you're working here, I don't want to ever hear that move shit on my radio station. Before I could answer, Wynn turned and stalked out of the newsroom. I was shaken. I waited until the day had ended and the red had left his face before asking the obvious. He let out with a sigh that was half a blast of anger and explained. A few years ago, I was program director of a station up in Chester. Just like now, I also hosted a show. I had the bright idea to invite these move nuts to my studio for an interview. It was a disaster. They took over the show, wouldn't answer a question, and I couldn't get a goddamn word in edgewise. They were ranting on. P.A. 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 They wouldn't let me moderate my own show. I couldn't speak on my own show. That was it for me. I swore then, never again. I looked at Wynn, a man I respected as brutally honest and one of the best teachers of my craft. I swallowed my own not inconsiderable pride. It was, after all, my freedom I was concerned about and not moves, and followed his edict. I never aired another move story while I was at his station. Being news director of WHAT AM meant doing the morning shift, training new talent, organizing features for the newscasts, and hosting a weekend show. I reveled in it and worked with youthful enthusiasm and energy. In 1975, the Reverend Jesse Jackson brought his show to town and black Christian Philly erupted in a storm of support for the country preacher. Philadelphia Push, People United to Serve, Save Humanity, hosted a national convention at the downtown Sheraton Hotel and hundreds lined up to get in and hear Jackson. Not only would the event be broadcast live over what, it would be simulcast over a network of black stations all across America. And hosting it would be Mumia Abu Jamal. I was excited and eager, but tried to play it off as no big thing. I worked with the engineers to get the equipment and the airtime right, and in spite of my nervousness, I knew I could handle it and did. All went well as I interwove commentary and interviews, gospel singers, and live audiences with the words of Jesse himself. I was as high as a Georgia pine. The second day, I arrived before airtime to get set up and found a small picket line in front of the Sheraton. They wore blue denim. Their hair was long, nappy, and uncombed. They 
were move. Delbert Africa was on the bullhorn giving Jesse hell. Move folks carried signs that read, This dumbass nigga is begging favors from the same system that oppresses him. Always hungry for a soundbite, I unslung my trusty tape recorder and approached Delbert. If Jesse Jackson has got a solution, why ain't he giving it to everybody instead of selling it at $25 a seat? What about poor folks from North Philly? Why they gotta spend their last dollar if they got it to hear this nigga? John Africa teaches us that the truth is free. Like the air we breathe, it ain't to be sold. Dell went on. As move folks, when they get going, tend to do, I got my soundbite and more. Then took the elevator up to the Jackson suite where I found the reverend surrounded by mostly black plainclothes cops who were working as his bodyguards. I found him, as always, game for an interview and asked him what he thought of the demonstration out front. The reverend looked at me like I was speaking Javanese and wrinkled his handsome features into a sneer. I have an agenda for black people in America, young man, he said. An agenda. Who cares about a bunch of dirty, unwashed niggas who don't comb their hair? Like a fool, I turned my Sony off. I turned it on and asked for more. This time, Jesse answered, no comment. And the police, in and out of uniform around the room, smiled. After I heard Jesse's sincere but off-the-record sentiments, I did my broadcast from the Push convention that morning somewhat lacklusterly. As I left the hotel, I walked back into the demo, but this time Delbert was haranguing not the air, but two large black men whom I recognized from the suite upstairs. They were telling Delbert Africa to take his bullhorn and his demonstration away from the hotel. Delbert was explaining to them about freedom of speech, which is a human, not a constitutional, right for move. There's plenty of freedom of speech on the next block, they said, and then they made the mistake of putting their hands on Delbert. Fists flew, a bullhorn arced, and blood spurted. Sensing news, I flicked on my sunny and dove in, dodging punches. Within minutes, the civil affairs squad was on the scene. Jesse's bodyguards were taken away to be treated for cuts and bruises, while Delbert and the other move men were taken away in handcuffs. I grimaced at the obvious injustice of the whole setup and at the apathy of the crowd that had gathered. But I had my story. That night, I played it as my lead. The grunts, curses, shouts, shrieks, and yells. I always said move was great sound were the next best thing to being there. After the broadcast, my boss came into the newsroom looking serious. I knew what he was going to say. Mumia, management wants to pull the tape of that demonstration and fight. Bernie, I can't do that. When I went to work for you, I promised to do my best to deliver the news truthfully, and you promised to back me up. I understand that, Mumia, but this station is co-sponsoring the PUSH event. We're simulcasting across the country. We have a responsibility to see that the thing is a success. I agree. 
But let me say this. Wasn't what happened and what I aired the truth? And don't our listeners at WHAT deserve the truth? Bernie looked at me sideways with a half smile, a half, you smart little bastard, smile. Then a full smile broke from his lips. You're right, Mumia. I'll stand up to management on your side. You did a good job. I was never prouder of that man or of my chosen career. He could have fired me. And I thought of Jesse's haunting words. Who cares about a bunch of dirty, unwashed niggers who don't comb their hair? I did. Black Radio acts as an unofficial feeder system to white radio and TV careers. It's a farm club where talents are tested, whitenized, and then packaged for general market consumption. When I left Moore's station, I was on this track. You could hear me on the Mutual Black Network, NPR, and the Associated Press. I fancied myself an independent reporter, and I was more independent than most. I never took a story off the wires if I could write it myself. Proud of my independence, I covered every story, even move. They were no more popular with black reporters than with white, maybe less. Their nappy-headed, aggressive, naturalistic style conflicted with the greased-down, good nigger image the media was looking for, and most black reporters steered clear of them. I tried to be objective. Not that I went out of my way to chase them down. Not that I had to. The change came after I read a 1975 story in the papers. It told of a night raid by cops on a move gathering in West Philly. Move men newly sprung from jail, they were continually in conflict with the establishment, arrived at their home early one morning. As they hugged and kissed wives and babies, a noisy, loving celebration filled the streets. Citing neighbors' complaints, the cops came, clubs swinging. Several move men were beaten, others arrested. Move charged brutality. The cops, of course, denied it. Standard stuff. Move even claimed that the cops killed a baby. Cops charged that Move was lying. Standard stuff. Lies from the cops. Move media overkill. Mumia was no green kid. I was too hip to believe either side. Move called to invite me to a press conference. I refused in a friendly manner, telling their spokeswoman, Louise Africa, that I was too busy. She called me a liar. I erupted in anger. I ain't got time for this bullshit. Well, make time. This ain't no game. Stop lying and tell me why you ain't coming. I was outraged. I had never heard of a group calling a reporter a liar and abusing him for refusing to come to their press conference. As mad as a bee in a wine bottle, I hung up. And that was that. They had their press conference without Mumia. Two days later, I picked up a copy of the Philadelphia Tribune from a newsstand. The story was about the press conference, but a picture at the bottom of the page 
told the proverbial thousand words. A black and white grainy photo of a light-skinned black baby boy, his tiny bruised body in a cardboard box with fruit and yams laid beside him. I recognized him. I must have looked at it twenty times. Almost asleep, he looked peaceful in death. I cursed myself. A few times. Quite a few times. I remembered my hot anger. I thought of my son about life Africa's age. I wept hot tears of shame. I cursed myself some more. Then I went back to work. After the death of Life Africa, MOVE became more and more militant. Their confrontations with police became more frequent, their assertions of their own rights and way of life more aggressive. On May 20, 1977, the assertion became total. MOVE men and women were seen on a wooden platform on the outside of their Powelton Village, West Philly headquarters, armed and uniformed. Shotguns, semi-automatic weapons, dark khaki uniforms, armed black folks, niggas with guns. The city went wild. Front page photos, live video, not since the Panthers strolled the streets of Sacramento had a black organization captured the imagination of the black people with simple, unapologetic militants. We are tired of being beaten, bones broken, and murdered babies. No longer will this system attack us with impunity. From now on, we will defend ourselves. In answer, the cops set up sniper nests around the neighborhood. Mayor and ex-police commissioner Frank Risso issued an ultimatum. Starve them out. The paramilitary option included cordoning off the neighborhood so that nothing came in or out unless sniffed by cops. Even long-standing homeowners had to show ID to enter their own cordoned-off neighborhood. Tensions mounted. Tempers flared. But miraculously, no shots were fired. Meanwhile, MOVE was becoming blacker. White members, plus some Spanish and Asian members, were scared off by the police presence. Most of the blacks stood fast, even under constant surveillance, with silenced rifles pointed at them for months. Angry policemen looking through the sights. The siege was one year old when MOVE agreed to allow a cop with a metal detector to sweep through the headquarters. The building was pronounced clean. Thus, emboldened, Rizzo ordered the siege broken by armed force. On the morning of August 8, 1978, before daybreak, a shot rang out. According to then KYW reporter, now Tribune editor, Paul Bennett, the shot came from across the street, not from move. No matter, the police hatred that had been building up for 15 months was unleashed in a blitzkrieg of bullets. Reporters and firefighters hit the dirt. By midday, the silence was back. One cop lay dead. Delbert Africa was beaten and pummeled, punched and kicked into near unconsciousness. Ten move people were charged with murder.
I was at Rizzo's press conference, a WCAU-TV reporter, Bill Balladini, who dared to ask if any of the captives had been beaten, was tongue-lashed by the police commissioner and called a liar, even though WCAU-TV had caught it all on video. Officials lying, though, weren't news in Philly. Still aren't. While walking to work one day, I passed in front of an idling cop car. I glanced at the driver, white, with brown hair and wearing dark shades. He smiled, put his hand out the car window, and pointed a finger at me, his thumb cocked back like the hammer of a gun. Bang, 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 the finger jerked as if from recoil, and the cop gave it a cowboyish blast of breath before returning it to an imaginary holster. He and his pals laugh. Car rolls. What a joke, I thought, as I sat down to type up an interview with three women known as the Pointer Sisters post-salty peanuts phase. But it was hard to concentrate. There was only one kind of pointing on my mind, and it wasn't those glitzy sisters. On December 9, 1981, the police attempted to execute me in the street. This trial is a result of their failure to do so. Just as the police tried to kill my brothers and sisters of the family Africa on August the 8th, 1978. I'm sleeping, sort of. It has the longorious feel of sleep with none of the rest. Time seems slower, easier, less oppressive. I feel strangely light. I look down and see a man slumped on the curb, his head resting on his chest, his face downcast. Damn, that's me. A jolt of recognition ripples through me. A cop walks up to the man and kicks him in the face. I feel it, but don't feel it. Three cops join the dance, kicking, blackjacking the bloody, handcuffed, fallen form. Two grab each arm, pull the man up, and ram him headfirst into a steel utility pole. He falls. Daddy? Yes, baby girl? Why are those men beating you like that? It's okay, baby girl. I'm okay. But why, Daddy? Why did they shoot you? And why are they hitting and kicking you, Abu? They've been wanting to do this for a long time, baby girl. But don't worry. Daddy's fine. See? I don't even feel it. The chubby-cheeked child's face softly melts into the features of a broad-nosed, bald, gold-toothed and grizzled old man, his dark brown skin leathery and nicely wrinkled. Boy, you all right? Yeah, Dad, I'm okay. I love you, boy, and I love you, Daddy. The I love you echoes like feedback, booming like a thousand voices and faces join the calming cacophony, wife, mother, children, old faces from down south older faces from Africa faces loving warm and dark rushing racing roaring past 
Consciousness returns to find me cuffed, my breath sweet with the heavy metallic taste of blood in darkness. I lie on the paddy wagon floor and am informed by the anonymous crackle on the radio that I am en route to the police administration building a few blocks away. I feel no pain, just the omnipresent pressure that makes every bloody breath a labor. I recall my father's old face with wonder at its clarity considering his death twenty years before. I am en route to the police administration building, presumably on the way to die. Context of white supremacy and technically we're done with the book but the afterword is you know it's more than five pages it's more than ten pages so it's it's considerable enough that we cannot do it today so we'll have to come back next week to do the afterword but technically we are kind of done with Mumia Abu Jamal's live from death row if you have questions suggestions comments you would like to add the number to dial 605-313-5164 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate no workplace racism tomorrow gusty will be flying into florida don't think i will be able to be present for the broadcast but we should be here for the compensatory call-in uh this weekend normal time once again, Gus T will have the privilege of doing a 9 p.m. compensatory call-in. Worst thing in the world. But uh, we'll be here Saturday, just not tomorrow for workplace racism. We'll see if we can compensate for that as we get down the line. Thomas in New York was ready for workplace racism, as was I. Lots of people had things this week for workplace racism. We'll have to get that in as we roll. Uh, folks who dialed in, if you have comments, questions, suggestions to share, Star six one folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Yeah, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, this is uh victim out of New Jersey. Um there's two things that I took note of um as I was listening. Um you said you said um, earlier. You said this book doesn't age well, and um, when he says um, this generation is aware, um, again that's subjective. Um, just a few passages down, he says uh, people would say Huey who, so that's not an indication that this generation is more aware. Um, he didn't use racism, but um, I would assume he's saying, you know, just basically more aware of what's going on in America as far as um, uh, what's going on with black people. So that's um, that has more to do with racism. Um, George Wallace, as you were talking about false comparisons, I mean, one thing that can be a great comparison is his experience at the George Wallace rally, um, rally. and um, what we seen uh, last election, uh, the last election of Donald Trump, um, with uh, whites ready and willing to get violent 
with uh, anyone, um, mainly people um, classified as black, who would go into uh, Donald Trump's uh, rallies and disrupt. Um, Jesse Jackson versus the MOVE organization. Um, that's just that's how I titled my notes. Um, it's just amazing that you see the same um, uh, name-calling amongst uh, black people who seemingly are attempting to um, solve the race problem, um, the racism in this country, solve the problem of uh, racism, is um, Jackson, Jesse Jackson. Um, name called the MOVE organization, referred to them as Nappy Head, and um, it escapes me, uh, but the MOVE organization also has some choice words for um, Jesse Jackson. Um, as we can see, uh, it continues, <laughs> whether it's people uh, name calling Al Sharpton or any other um, black spokesperson, because I do believe and I do agree with Lily Fuller that we do not have black leaders. We do just basically have black people that speaks to black issues. Um, that's all I have right now. Much obliged uh, caller in New Jersey, Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have comments you would like to share, line should be open. Proceed. Well, the Philadelphia um, Police Department, um, they stood out <laughs> quite quite prominently. Um, uh, the abuse he took led him to the Black Panthers, and then there was, um, you know, a lot of discussion with the Black Panthers, and he's never going to join any organization, and he comes up back, and um, he gets introduced to John Africa, his teaching. And... Um, Man, I would say, um, man, Rizzo, um, uh, for a whole year, 15 months, they had snipers on adjacent buildings, made people who lived in the area have to go through random checks to enter the area of uh, system of white supremacy. I mean, man, Philadelphia, they get a um, A-plus, um, as most American cities do. Um, but, man, they really... Um, so, the, and this wasn't a long time ago. I mean, this wasn't Malcolm and Martin, you know, this was during the Cosby show ever, you know, um, uh, Bill Cosby from Philadelphia. Um, but I agree with you with, um, saying the book didn't age well, however, and I agree with the um, gentleman who just spoke with a lot of contradiction. Um, you know, I, I also look at the position that he's in, um, you know, I mean, he's working with information, secondhand information, um, not really experiencing it. And um, I think that um, that could attribute to why it's not, you know, um, standing the test of time. Um, but, however, um, you know, I think he did a great job laying out some of the, um, you know, the treatment of the, the MOVE organization. Um, I'm glad I didn't hear Sue Africa's name. Um and um, that's about it. That's the end of the book you said, and the rest of it will get more into his case. Um, well, his experience with the police himself 
I mean, he is a journalist. He's supposed to have a certain level of, you know, hands-off, you know, from the police, and it doesn't seem like they were uh, following that oath. I personally, Gus, if I was those, you know, individuals, uh, him or any of the move organization, I would have moved. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, once they start killing your babies and um, your showing has to walk around with guns to show force against the police department, you know, it's probably time for you to get up out of here um, and think about self-preservation. I mean, what my line think. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Very logical. It's not like he has access to any information that he wants to get every single detail about these events, much less to be there to witness them from greater confinement. Uh, retired firefighter should be with us. Can I be heard? Can I be heard? Sir. Oh, okay. I, I, I guess kind of like you kind of like breaking up a little bit, but, uh, yes, I, uh, basically had the opportunity to pay attention to most of the, uh, second half of the reading and, uh, was just listening uh, to uh, uh, what he was saying about the uh, the Black Panther Party and uh, it's uh, primarily it's, it's uh, a quote-unquote breakup in, in ending. It, it was actually uh, on a uh, one of these uh, white uh, uh, talk shows uh, of the, uh, I think it was of the, of, in, in the 70s, whereas, uh, as I think he mentioned, the uh, white host called up, called up uh, Eldridge Cleaver and had uh, Mr. Newton on the phone also. And you had two non-white black people arguing and cussing each other out over the phone in front of a white audience. That's primarily what took place. Uh, matter of fact, you can probably, you, well, I'm not, I'm not advising nobody to do this, but it, you can listen to it right on YouTube right now if you wanted to. <laughs> I wouldn't advise it, you know, if you, uh, you know, want to have a positive uh, sleep tonight. But, uh, uh Irregardless, that actually did take place. Um, uh, I can recall that uh, taking place. Uh, yes, uh, I'm, I'm. I'm also glad that uh, that the uh, the guests from the Move uh, organization wasn't uh, on the program either. Uh, uh, the whole idea about uh, Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver, uh, it became more or less a uh, situation where his personalities got involved more so than what they were, uh, say they were, uh, were organized for. And uh, it uh, assisted in causing the death of a lot of people and pain that still exists today. Uh, behind it.
But uh, anyway, uh, that was just some observations of mine from the uh, from the reading, and I'll yield the floor. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, the portions of that <clears throat> confrontation between uh, Dr. Huey P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver uh, are in the PBS documentary, uh, Black Panther's Vanguard of the Revolution, that came out, I think, in 2016 as well. Uh, you can see portions of it. Uh, I remember that acutely because I almost made a sound clip of it because at one point, I believe it's Dr. Newton, although, you know, which person said it doesn't really matter. Uh, at one point, it was, uh, wait a minute. Hang on there, brother. Wait, wait a minute, Coon. Look here, brother. I'm going to tell you where you're wrong, Coon. I'm gonna t-. And I said, see, there it is again. Now, if I'm just going to be called a brother, for then that to be followed up with your coon and Uncle Tom and all the rest of it, well, then, you know, we can just leave the brother part off of it. <clears throat> but again, you don't need to. I'm not saying you need to wait. Just if you see that documentary, you will see a little snippet from that exchange. Anywho, as I read, uh, he mentioned France Fanon. And, you know, when I said I, I was not appreciative of this book, that was another book I remembered. Some of the worst books <laughs> that I have read, France Fanon black uh black love is a revolutionary act the hate you give there are some similarities between those books and this book he references france fanon he mentions the same lame phrase that everybody mentions when they mention france fanon because so much of that text is not coherent and we read it in the book club uh that line uh fanon once opined that every generation must find its destiny or fulfill it or betray it whatever that means if you're white i guess your generation practice racism Whatever people say that as though it's, you know, something really profound uh, from Fanon that needs to be repeated uh, consistently. Uh, let's see. When he begins talking about Huey P. Newton, uh, just he has the section where he's he's talking about Huey P. Newton being a pre. Let's see. Huey, self-taught, brilliant, taciturn, strong-willed, molded the righteous indignation and rage of an oppressed people into a national militant revolutionary. I said, watch, there's that word again. Nationalist organization, his courageous spirit touched the downtrodden black America's so-called lumpen proletariat classes. I can only say again, in my view, that sort of language, that Marxism, the socialism, the communism, that there's some sort of class warfare, it is totally incorrect. And it's not just a well, that's it's subjective and that's your analysis. No, that is a part of how you end up with Sue Africa as your comrade, uh, thinking that there's some sort of class dispute and you have downtrodden whites uh, who are also being mistreated by this system and we can pair up Sue Africa. That's how you end up with major errors. This sort of nonsense right here. And we just saw this with Paul Robeson, the exact same thing uh, where he had whites who were talking like this. Oh, well, there's some cool whites who are down with us. No, that is an error. Uh, let's see. I thought this was the same. I feel like frequently we, we romanticize the Panthers and I feel like it should be very flagrant. They were obliterated in short order. It's not like this was a 20 year brawl 
with equal casualties on both sides. It wasn't even close. It, they were totally wiped out. Uh, even people that were not Panthers who were just uh, casually associated with them. Like that's the language that should be uh, incorporated by the time he was in greater confinement. A lot of that information had been uh, revealed and he was there. So, I mean, hey, you firsthand knowledge uh, of the decimation that they wreaked uh, on those individuals, including Dr. Newton's uh, assassination, which John Patash talked about as, as, hey, this is not some drug thing that the way that he died in and of itself is a part of Pro number one to get black people who are at least stumbling and fumbling and trying to solve the problem to get them distracted and drugged and everything else and then if it seems like they might be even through all of that trying to figure it out and get it back together well we might just need to get rid of them period and just make it look like you know crackhead and just never got it together and that's that that's in John Patasha's book we talked about that then that would be one again he's in death row later information doesn't have access to all that but uh, I just think it's we should be more accurate in terms of the enormous power differential that white people have not that America has that white people have uh, let's see I just thought it was interesting they said Huey was was it must be said no godling or saint I don't often hear people say that when they talk about a white person dead or alive like I don't hear people when they talk about uh, give me a, uh, Richard Nixon John F. Kennedy any white person male or female I just don't hear them say that as often I mean regardless of what the person did they don't talk about Cecil Rhodes or Thomas Jefferson or that hey he was no saint now they don't say that seems like they just add that language in for black people uh, Michael Brown you know he was no saint that Michael Brown Eric Garner he was no saint uh, let's see. We don't have communities. He said, purge our communities of the poison, poison that plagued. If we had communities, this would not be a problem. You would need a Black Panther Party. Uh, you don't have that's that power differential. We don't have the power to purge our communities of anything. We don't have we don't even have communities. That's the problem. Next. Uh, the whole scene about him going to confront George Wallace. Just I kept saying, that's what I mean when I say we don't understand right I can slow it down and give it bullet time. This is what I mean about we don't understand racism. So a whole stadium of white people are rallying for a racist who wants to be president. No, it's not 2016 and Donald Trump. It's Gerald Wallace. But you could insert name from any era. Ronald Reagan, you know, whatever. Eisenhower. George Bush either. So we, the four of us black people, we're going to go to the rally and yell black power we're going to go to the rally and yell black power Ungawa I'm just going to go back to reread this was when I said one of the worst books I've read so he says they shout white power send those niggers back and I mean this has happened in this at the time George Wallace won I think they could have probably been killed and there may not have been a whole lot done about it. Like George Wallace was almost assassinated on this campaign and had to go back to look at the dates correctly. But I mean, this is not that far removed from Dr. King's assassinate. Like they could have been killed anyway. So he says they white power, blah, blah, blah. back to Africa. We shouted black power. Ungawa. Don't ask what Ungawa means. We didn't know. All we knew was that it had a hell of a ring to it and he spells hell of a H-E-L-L-U-V-A and they keep saying it 
that right there is a pretty good microcosm for black people. I understand. I can even take that out. Non-white people in general, beyond just black people, that right there. Catchy slogans and phrases. They got a bunch of them. Hands up, don't shoot. I'm black and I'm proud. Black life. <laughs> Insert phrase. We got lots of those little catchy jingles and cliches that don't add up to a hill of beans metaphor. Uh, it's absolutely worthless. Uh, most of the time you got people. Exactly what he said. Ungawa. What does that mean? I don't know. Ungawa, George Wallace. Ungawa. Ungawa, the rest of y'all. Ungawa. That's... <laughs> That has been a big chunk of our time attempting to counter racism, white supremacy, and that's why white people laugh. They know. And in fact, when I read this, I had several moments where I thought, man, I feel almost like 1984. George Orwell, we read that in the book club, where they're trying to find this book where they think it's going to go over top the system. And you come to find out that the, the people, they're not overthrowing white supremacy, racism. I don't even know what the oppressors in. Uh, Oshlandia or whatever it's called in 1984 you come to find out that the oppressors they wrote the the manual that they're trying to get that they think is going to lead them to liberation that was a thought that came to my mind like hmm I wonder if I mean Noel Noel Hanrahan is a white woman she had a major part in writing this book like did they put this out to try to see if they could uh, attract so called black revolutionaries and control confuse how they think about this problem like that thought did come to mind as I was reading some of this because it was so I don't know what to say. So they go outside, they get beat down. He says that this moved him into the, this incident moved him to the black Panther party. Okay. Uh, they talk about being decimated. The police come and are going to shoot them down again while listening to James Brown. And I thought cowbell, there we go again. That's what I mean about the nonsense of it. All these phrases and the cliches, even the black Panther party, the leather jacket. What does that amount to? the beret people romanticize that like man we were so cool we had our fists in that what is that worth when it really comes down to anything white people do that what is that really worth all of it the fist in the air the marching outside the standing on the roof with the gun what is that worth rhetorical on purpose next James Brown cowbell make sure I got that into uh, the brawl all of that coordinated by white people when he said this was another this was where I said like 1984 where this just felt like hmm that's and I said the same thing about the hate you give that's why I said it has similarities to me to some of the other books that I despise uh, when he says the Panthers had established bona fide show enough s-h-o-n-u-f-f diplomatic relations with progressive and revolutionary states and movements across the globe I don't know what that is for what I mean I don't even know what that's for. Is that supposed to give you some feeling of, wow, they were really important or wow. I mean, it did not do that for me. Uh, Again, this organization was totally obliterated. Those uh, diplomatic ties did not help them. Nobody sent in arms or military support to stop any of what J. Edgar Hoover was doing at all. Their show enough bona fide credentials. Again, you can put that in the same pile with the black beret, the fist, the leather jacket, unless I've been misinformed. Uh, mm, see. then he goes off to move that was another one where I said wow so you leave the Black Panther experience with all of that you leave and you're not going to join any more organizations hey that's following logic Mr. Neither Fuller what is the open air system four wall system those groups it's not going to work you've seen all the reasons Cointel Pro and he says that's my code until move comes along and that's another one where I said like Wow, we've had move 
individuals on the program, Ramona Africa. They had some black people who went out and were trying to do correct things. But I mean, wow, maybe I wouldn't feel this way if Sue Africa hadn't been here. But I mean, are you telling me I was a member of the Black Panther Party and saw all of that? I'm not joining any more organizations until Sue Africa and John, uh, John Africa, Sue Africa and the rest of them stroll along nappy headed as can be. And that's wow. I need to be with these guys and gals. What? I say confusion is lethal for a reason. Maybe I needed to be there to see move in person. I will only add, I have seen enough of what happens at least in the U S and generally worldwide. When black people go out trying to show how tough they are with firearms, exactly what happened to move exactly what happened to the black panther party exactly you can just keep on rolling uh inserting names i have seen that over and over and over if that means something to you for 30 seconds uh to see that uh and they got pictures of move organization when they were on the roof we talked about all this before that might be cool for about 30 seconds but the real gangsters who have real power fi- what is that white people kill for fun they just get excited. Oh, we got all our new toys. Child. Let's get the helicopter. We got that C4 explosive. Whoa! It's going to be a fun night in the city of brotherly love. Anything else I need to get in? That's a good point. Thomas in New York talked about move. If, he's, if Mumia was on NPR and these other major outlets generally, you'd be a little bit careful with journalists generally, especially if they have that sort of attention. But apparently that did not need to be the case for Mumia. Uh, the whole thing about Jesse Jackson, it seemed as though. I mean, move. Those are his people. I get it. It seemed as though he was like, yeah, right on. They're doing great work. And this Jesse guy, I'm not really feeling him. He said he did a lackluster effort hosting the event. Jesse Jackson name called move called them niggers. They name called him. No name calling. I don't really see much of a difference. They have their view. Neither one of them have a solution. I want to make sure I get that in too. Jesse Jackson doesn't have a solution. That's obvious because the problem is still here. John African move didn't have a solution. Problem is still here. You solve all that VGQ. I'm not going to stand outside. And that would be another thing where I would just look at move. So you got white members and then you all are going outside to protest other black people that you don't agree with their views on racism. And then I even step back again. Now, if I am Mumia and I just watched this in the Black Panther Party, why would I want to get involved with this again to have black people? He actually sees an actual violent altercation. It's not just what uh, Huey P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver calling each other names on the phone. This is an actual brawl in the streets with black people. Why would I want to be involved with that again? I already know where this is going. Exactly where it went. Same place maybe I'm wrong I could be I have travel tomorrow so I could be totally scatterbrained and just having Florida on the brain but I was thinking about all this well before we got to yes pack Florida time anything else I need to get in VGQ VGQ it seemed like these were white people at the radio station who were defending Mumia and he was so proud. It seemed like this was a white person. Uh, that's really all I have to say there. Uh, I can leave there. We have commentary for next week. They got a statue to Frank Rizzo. I've seen that. I think I took pictures of it when I visited Philadelphia, but that's an, yeah, that's a great spot to end. There is no sorrow for what happened with move. Frank Rizzo has a statue in the midi middle of downtown Philadelphia. 
Mumia is still in prison. Many of the move individuals are still in prison and or forgotten. Frank Rizzo has a statue. Uh, with that, we will wrap. Unless I said something really wrong and someone needs to shout about that in the next 20 seconds, maybe 15 seconds. All right. We'll get to it next week. We'll have ample time. No workplace. Safe travel, travel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm hoping not to be beaten or tased by the TSA folks and uh, wishing the same safe travels for uh, all of the folks heading down to uh, Orlando. Hopefully we'll be able to tune in uh, and tweet along the way. I'll post online as we're moving cross country. Man, oh, man. Last retreat. I was so happy to get back to Seattle. I almost kissed the ground. Uh, I'm hoping that it will be a little easier this time. White people permitting. White people permitting. Right on. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Keep our brain computers working well so we can solve all problems, including the big one. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle or on a plane. Uh, driver or passenger, let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That said, I did go by the spa today to try to relax before all of this, and I had the biggest giggle. The whites were in the spa bragging about the new Jordans that they got for Christmas, and I almost thought, wow, I thought that was, I thought you all chastised us and said, that's what coons do. That's why we're in this predicament, spending all that money on Jordans, and they were, that's what they did, talking about all the cool Jordans they got. Anywho, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, no name calling. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in no name calling nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother problem. you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.